Hello again, friends, and you are my friends, and welcome to another edition of 605, the Super Podcast, the only podcast on Turner Time. The Mothership! The best wrestling podcast on the planet, the only wrestling podcast that matters, the most influential wrestling podcast. Call somebody. I am your host, the great Brian Last. It's me! The hardest working man in wrestling podcasts. Yeah! Baby, baby. And I'm very happy to welcome back to the show, but welcome to the co-host chair for the first time, my friend and yours, the golden boy, Jerry Gray. Jerry, welcome back to the show. It's a pleasure with all the 605, the mothership. It's a pleasure to be on there with you, Brian, and I'm enjoying this already. We've already had a talk off air, and it's going to be a great show. If only the off-air show was going to be public, people would lose their minds. That was one of the best conversations (laughs) with crazy stories I've ever had. (laughs) But, you know, Jerry, before we get too deep into the show, before we talk about everything, and we have some really cool stuff coming up with Ron Fuller, with Tom Burke, Front Row Section D with John Hitchcock returns this week. But before we do anything else... Let's remind everyone about your GoFundMe page. Of course, you have been battling cancer for some time now. Stage four cancer is what you're currently dealing with. And you have a GoFundMe page because naturally this has, I I would assume, I mean, you could tell me if I'm wrong, this has just destroyed your finances, this long-term battle that you've been engaged in. Yeah, because I was running my own federation up until I started getting sick in 2012. And then I got to where, plus I had a pulmonary embolism too, so I couldn't fly anymore because most of the shows I was doing were out of state, not in Florida. So it really ruined my, I mean, I was doing good until all this happened. And now it's been, I had all my savings, everything's gone from all the, just not having any work, you know, pretty much. And being to where I'm almost bed bound almost killed me last uh, week when they did the benefit and i had to sit there just for the for two or three hours or whatever it was just so much pain and everything but yeah that's all what happened actually stage four cancer well we're gonna see what we could do by making things a little easier for you and of course if you want to chip in if you want to help out you can go to the simple way to say it is tinyurl.com slash gofund golden boy now what this does it takes you to the gofundme page for jerry and you can go there and again if you want to help out that's the place to do it i want to mention one more thing about this and of course we'll mention the link again later on the show but travis heckle the official art director of the super podcast and of the arcadian vanguard podcast network has been doing something really cool and he's only going to be able to do it for a limited time because of the uh the numbers you know of people who want it it may end up eating too much of his time up but if you at least for right now if you make a contribution to jerry to help jerry out and you can get more information at the facebook page facebook.com slash super podcast travis will make for you an exclusive one-of-a-kind travis heckle artwork of you you can finally be in the Travis Heckle artwork of your very own. So that's very cool. Once again, the link, and we'll give it again later on, tinyurl.com slash GoFundGoldenBoy. When did you first pick Golden Boy as your moniker? Actually, Dory Funk Jr. gave me that name because uh, when I first started, uh, I wore gold, like sparkle. I don't know what they're called. Like, kind of like the Mel Mascaras, the gold tights, gold trunks. LeMay? And I had a tank. I guess that's what it was, but I had to say that. <laughs> but anyway, the uh, yeah. So uh, and then I had like a a robe and all that, like like my idol Austin Idol had. And then uh, so Dory Funk just said, uh, "You're going to be the Golden Boy, Golden Boy Gray." They called me at first it was not even the Jerry part, so he called me that. That's where it came from. 
And yeah, Travis is an excellent artist. I mean, did I love the one he did with the white jet mulligan giving me the uh funny money monopoly money <laughs> thank god i spent it i thought it was funny though it's not like a cutting out on blackjack i mean i think it's hilarious <laughs> well you told me something the other day that i thought was interesting because you know we had heard about blackjack being involved in this counterfeit ring and of course him and kendall would end up going to prison and based on what a lot of people have yeah. said it was one of the reasons why barry left the wwf was all of this happening and uh-huh. Blackjack paid you for a show you worked for him with what you presume, because you were paid in 20s, and that was a very unique and a weird situation, a way to be paid for one yeah. of these shows. You assume that that was uh-huh. more than likely the counterfeit money. Was everyone on that show paid the same way, paid in 20s? And how was the payday yeah. in general? Uh, well, because he <laughs> – the thing was when – he first wanted to have me, he had the show booked and he wanted to, he called me, wanted me to work on Cause he had just worked on me. I mean, worked on my show. The one that you saw with Terry Funk with me and all that. I October 88. You, you, you had, yeah. You had the tape of that. Yeah. So, um, he had just worked for me and asked me how much I got for that guaranteed show at the fair. And I told him, and then he said, Oh my God, you kidding me? He said, I can get more, probably a lot in the, wherever in Bahamas. And then he, he got a guaranteed show over there at a fair, I guess. So, um, but then the weird part was we didn't even do the show at the fair. We went to some dumpy building like, and then, uh, no people came. I don't know. He said they, they sabotaged the show, the Bahama, whoever it was, Charlie major. I think the guy's name was that always ran the, for the office of Florida wrestling because Tyree wasn't on the show. So only like people was there, maybe three or four people. And, uh, so there was no crowd and we still did the show. It was Danny Spivey was there, Bugsy McGraw, Blackjack worked. I mean, all the matches and then uh, me and a lot of my guys. And then Malia Hosaka was there. So at the end of the show, I'm sitting there waiting to get paid. And then he just left. I don't know. He disappeared somewhere, Blackjack for a long time. And then Bugsy said, what are you, what are you waiting for to go over to the hotel? And then here comes Blackjack with to my room with all this $20 bill. It's a big pile of money to pay everybody with, you know, all 20. And, uh, I mean, like for everybody, hot <laughs> off so the press tells me <laughs> he's real nervous too. So he's real nervous too, for a six foot eight, whatever he was giant, you know, he's asking me, who's your partner? You know, you want to be my partner and your shows and everything. And then I was like, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. And then uh, he goes, count this out. He'll count out 500 for Bugsy, 500 for Danny. And he gave me like the weirdest part was he said, how much do you need on the phone? And I was like, I don't know. Just you tell me whatever. He goes, uh, you're big in the Bahamas. How's, uh, I think he said five or 600 or something. And then, and then I'll pay all your boys, uh, it's your money. So you just give it and give them whatever you want. So I'm going to give you a couple, like three grand or whatever. I was like, Jesus. Okay. <laughs> so it was just so much money. It was so much money. I was like, what the hell? How unique then, was that though uh, for yeah, you was... at that time for you to get 500 to $600 for a shot in let's say late 88, early 89. How unique was that? Yeah, that was pretty high, but high prime. I mean, that was what like you could get, you know, Terry Funk for almost or 700. I think he was and uh, 500, like uh, Dory and people like that. Um, Blackjack was 500 when I worked, when he worked for me. So I was like, okay, this is kind of weird. I remember Wendy Richter when she was so hot right off of uh, when she quit WWE or whatever happened with WWE or WWF, you know, when she was with Cindy Lauffer, she worked on my show. And usually she got like two grand, I guess. And then she got 500s all too. So back then it was like a lot to what he gave me. It was more than 500 really. Cause he told me just, he's going to me this much and I pay whatever I want. 
you know, and then uh, the thing was, it was all 20s for everyone. He said, and he was real nervous telling me, count out 500 for the Bugsy for me, count out 500 for uh, Danny Spivey, blah, blah, blah. And then real quick, though, he was like nervous. And then it only happened like a couple months later, the, the bust, you know. What would have happened if you had noticed the serial numbers and said something? Uh, yeah. I never even looked at anything <laughs> and I spent it. I spent it. Thank God. Yeah. I, I was, when I heard about what happened, I was like, man, I hope I don't have any of that. I don't think I do anyway back then, you know? So, um, yeah, I, I was really stunned when I heard what happened. It was only like a short time later. They said it was $20 bills. And I, if I remember that he was had to, because that way, you know, they don't check it. If it's like the big bills there, they always check, you know, more. <laughs> so 20, he got away with that for a while. You know, another thing you brought up, Jerry, uh, last time, and we didn't dive into this, and we certainly must, was that when you worked mm-hmm. in Mid-Atlantic, when you lived in the Carolinas, you lived with uh, Jake Roberts and Gene Anderson, a combination I wouldn't think of as being roommates, <laughs> but how did you yeah. end up living with them? And let's discuss, that must have been just an adventure every day. Oh, yeah. So me and Jake, we were friends in uh, Tampa when he was down here with Kevin Sullivan. I got to be friends with him there, and he actually is the one that really helped me a lot when I first started because he told me, you got to have confidence when you go out there. It doesn't matter. You're just starting out. If you have to lose, don't get all boo-hoo when you walk out. You know, act like you're the world champion. He told me that when he didn't even know me hardly, so he was really good guy to do that. Nobody else told me stuff like that. And then uh, I remember Kevin Sullivan used to tell me that as good as I looked and everything, because I was really working out hard and everything. He said, I'm going to be doing this for you someday when I was doing jobs for him, you know. But anyway, Jake told me that, and then I started doing that, acting like when I walk out, like charisma and everything. So then we got to be friends. And then uh, when I got booked up and Dusty sent me up to, uh, Dusty and JJ sent me up to Mid-Atlantic to work full-time. And uh, right when I got there in the first show, Savannah, Georgia, Jake was there. He had gone up there. He was in the dress room, and he said, uh, where are you going to stay at when you get to Charlotte? He said, you could just stay with me and Gene Anderson. So I'm like, yeah, that's cool. Okay. So then. Uh, <laughs> I, I drive there the next uh, day or whatever, and I can't—I don't even know where to go with the apartment. So he tells me to call Gene Anderson, and then Gene—if he didn't know you—he was—he <laughs> tells me to call Gene Anderson at the office and get the directions all the way because there was no—he had no phone at the apartment at all, so I couldn't call Jake. So I called Gene at the office, and he's like—he didn't even know I was moving in there, and it's his apartment. It was actually Don Carnoodle's apartment, and Gene was just using it because Don, Don was in WWF with Sergeant Slaughter. And uh, Gene was just using it, and they let Jake stay there. But Jake invited me to stay there without even asking Gene. Plus, I had a girlfriend with me, too. So then uh, Jake said, you can just have the bedroom, and I'll sleep on the couch, you guys, you and your girlfriend. So then uh, I called Gene at first. He goes, what? He goes, uh, Jake said what? You're staying with us. Uh, the way he talked that deep way goes, um, he got all, you could tell like, well, Jake, okay. He said, go to the Jeep dealership, turn left and blah, 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 something. And I kept getting lost. Cause I was like, what the hell is he talking about? What apartment and everything do I go to? It was a big apartment. And then I call him back again from a pay phone and no cell phones back then 83. And he goes, uh, Go to the Jeep dealership, turn left, go in there. It's apartment. You would tell he was mad because Jake did that, you know. So then I go up and finally find Jake. He comes to the door with a towel on. I got my girlfriend, you know. <laughs> and it's like, okay. And then he uh, 
okay. And finally, Gene warmed up to me after, you know, it took a little while. And then uh, and I ended up riding with Gene or Jake, one or the other, all the time, driving Gene's big Cadillac. And he'd tell me, that's where I learned everything. Pretty much, uh, Gene would tell me all kinds of like psychology and don't do so many moves, slow down, listen to the crowd. And then he'd say, he'd say that, uh, actually Greg Valentine's better than Flair because Flair goes too fast. He rushes. And then, uh, Gene would tell me all kinds of stuff. And then Jake really did too. He told me to quit doing all this stuff to a million high spots, like Mexican, Mil Muscaras or somebody. I kept liking, you know, stuff like that, like the Mexican style, Mil Muscaras and some of the Tiger Mask and all of them. And Jake was like, nah, you don't do that stuff here. You got to do psychology. Make way, get him in a front face lock here, heel, and make the people get pissed wanting him out of the hold, you know. So I started learning like that and living with Jake. Yeah, that was really the odd couple with him and Gene and then because Gene slept on a Gene that was going through like a separation with his wife so he was sleeping on a mattress in the uh the one bedroom and then we had a mattress in, in our bedroom me and my girlfriend and uh, Jake slept on the couch and then uh I think something was going on when I would go I'd go to different towns sometimes they had three shows running every night you know back then mid-Atlantic it was so big three shows a night and Gene always made it, even though I was just a new newcomer, you know, he always put me on like the the huge shows like Greensboro and, and instead of like the little spot show high school. And I remember one man gang would get pissed because they'd be like, what the hell does he get all the damn big shots for? Jesus. And then Jimmy Vine would say, because he lives with the Booker, brother. Graze the Booker, brother. <laughs> Graze the Booker. He used to call me the Booker. He the Booker, Gray. What the hell is the finishes, man? And then... <laughs> <laughs> but I'd be like, geez, I'm not, I don't know, man. I'm not the booker. And then, uh, yeah, they would get hot like some of the big names. Like, what the hell? We're in the fucking spot show. High school split, and he's on the damn Greensboro Coliseum. Anyway, and then Jake, uh, oh, my God, some of the stories. Well, how wild was he back then? When you hear all these stories about oh, Jake, shit. you know, years after the fact. But, you know, we know how things yeah. were in the early 90s. But what were things <laughs> like in 83 before he goes to Georgia, before oh, he's man. in the Mid-South or WWF? What well, was it like then? Well, let's see. He wasn't making a, you know, he was like a middle guy. He wasn't like a top guy. And uh, he wasn't making much more than me, probably. So he was always borrowing money from me. And then he didn't want to pay me back all the time he'd hide from me and stuff and or whatever hide is exactly like he's just passed out on the couch and couldn't wake him up so he uh one time he took too many back then it was uh all i did was I, i'd smoke marijuana honestly i don't even do that now because you know too expensive but anyway <laughs> yeah. um I'd, wrong I'd smoke with that, marijuana. yeah i would smoke marijuana. that's all i would do and they would all be doing coke and placidils was the thing everybody I think that's what happened with David Von Eric from what I heard. I mean, I don't know. Anyway, the uh, the Placidils were the big thing. So Jake would take, I don't know how many of them things, and then uh, pass out, and I couldn't wake him up all the time. So one time I decided, okay, I'm just going to get in this damn wallet and land there and get my money back. He owes me. And then all of a sudden his eye opened when he seen me. I said, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I'm getting my damn money. I'm getting my damn money, okay? $300 or whatever the hell it was. And then, uh, so anyway, yeah, the only reason he went to Atlanta to be the booker was because the Briscoes owned a lot of points in, in uh, Georgia wrestling, you know, at that time, because, you know, they sold it to Vince later. Yeah. Their points. So anyway, I rode with the Briscoes and Jake a lot, and uh, they really got in good with him because they were partying so much. And he, had, he did have good ideas. I don't know if he got them from Grizzly or what, but Jake would come up with 
Dory was supposed to be the booker, but Jake was telling him the finishes all the time. What to do? Dory would just listen to what Jake would say, even though Jake was only like 24 or 25, whatever he was. I was like 18. So um, what happened was we'd ride with the Briscoes, and they'd tell him, like, yeah, we're going to get you in Atlanta, the book and everything. And then uh, on his first thing, he was supposed to go to Atlanta. He took a million Placidils, and he couldn't wake up. He's supposed to get his flight and leave, you know, and everything. And then I had to wake him up. I mean, smack him around and everything. Finally, he wouldn't even have been there for one for me. <laughs> anyway, he did go there to be the booker and all that. But um, before that, though, I was lived with him probably eight months. I mean, eight months of a lot of uh, adventures. And one of the funniest one ever was when, okay, Dick Slater, you know, I told you already how tough he was. Yeah. Okay, so he was there and he was a heel too. And Jake was a heel. And he was just going through a separation with his hot, his wife was hot, really hot too. Um, I can't I forget her name, Sherry or something. But anyway, she lived in Myrtle Beach. She left him. And uh, Slater was still, you know, in love with her though. So Jake somehow hooked up with her. And Jake's not a fighter. He told me, he asked me if I wrestled amateur. And that's what the Briscoes did too. It was the funniest thing. They would decide if they're going to be stretchy and rip you know ribby and stuff and see how tough you are first and they were questioning me like the first time i rode with them well did you wrestle amateur i said yeah in ohio six years and all the high school everything uh, state champion all the stuff and 220 and weight class and they were like ohio because that's really good wrestling you know up there and they were like uh oh yeah okay so we're gonna get him built before we rib him so I didn't drink. I said it was smoking. I said, that's not going to do anything to you. Like, make you pass out. So then they put, they must have put a bunch of Placidils because they, they were all taking all that crap. And, and my, uh, they made me drink some beer. They kept telling me, come on, have beer with us. Have beer with us. So I drank some beer and I was out. I mean, so they somehow put me in the trunk, Briscoes and Jake. And <laughs> and then uh, there was a full car. Load. I remember we had five guys in the car. It was like Kelly Kaninsky too. That's right. So, um, they put me in the trunk, right, when I'm passed out. And I, they're driving, and I finally wake up, and I can't breathe because carbon dioxide, you know, poison or whatever the hell was going on. I couldn't breathe. So I started trying to bang the trunk and push the seat where you can get, but they were sitting in the back area, so I couldn't push against them. And they, had, they turned the radio up real loud, so I couldn't hear any. I mean, I couldn't, they couldn't even hear me then, just as a rib. They were going to do the rib where they drive to a Denny's or someplace that's open and back into the window. They told me we're going to rib the uh, baby faces later. Me and Jerry Briscoe are going to get in the trunk because they kept driving by a steamboat. And I think Flair was a baby face. All of them were driving by us and everything on the road. So they said, we'll get in the trunk later and uh, rib them. And I was just like, eh, I ain't doing that. Uh, I know. <laughs> They're going to do some kind of rib. And then uh, they, they waited till I was passed out to, to get me, pull me in there and drag me in there. But you're supposed to do the rib. Have you heard the rib? They said it's a Brian Blair, Buzz Sawyer. I don't know how many guys. Okay, they, but they're awake and they fell for it. You know, they're like, I was just like, I didn't like the way they were acting because they were acting like they were playing with my hair and stuff. I had to sit between both Briscoe. So I was like, what the hell is going on? They were playing with my hair and acting like they were gay and everything. And I was like, I was acting like I, I was just quiet, like I didn't sell nothing. You know, I didn't know that's the best thing you can do to just don't even sell it. Cause then they're, they're like, what the hell? This guy's crazy. So anyway, the rib they did on Brian Blair, he tells it all the time and Buzz Sawyer, they tell him and then they say, okay, we'll go ahead and get in the trunk. Yeah. yeah. And then they, they say, well, we'll, we'll pop the trunk right when the Briscoes are behind or the um, baby faces are behind us. And then you moon them. Just have your ass sticking up in there. It's going to be funny as hell. Oh yeah. Okay. Okay. 
So then they'd back into like a Denny's right in the window and start blowing the horn real loud. And then you, they'd pop it out with their ass hanging out, and then they'd drive off real quick, and the guy'd fall down with his ass hanging out, running after him with his pants, skinned his knees all up. They did it to Buzz Sawyer. I mean, tough guys, even like Buzz Sawyer, Brian Blair. He tells the story all the time, Blair does. And they did it to me, but they had to knock me out first because they knew I wasn't going to get in the drunk. I knew how something was going to happen. I'd just tell the way they were acting, ribbing me too much, like with the hair, playing with my hair and everything. I was like, no, I don't trust these guys. And then uh, I was so damn pissed. I, I got the rib back on them, though. After They never ribbed me again because I almost killed them. Afterwards, they um, had me drive, of course, the new young guy. You know, So I'm driving like 100. I was so mad what they did. I was driving like 120 miles an hour, hitting the curbs almost and everything. And they were scared to death of Briscoes and Jake and everybody. Like, Calm down, man. What the hell are you doing? You're going to kill us. So I was like, yeah, you want to fucking rib people? <laughs> and they just like, okay, this guy's fucking nuts. We ain't going to rib them. I figured out, okay, just don't sell the ribs and they're not going to do it. You know, then Buddy Roberts one time tried to give me a bird bath. You know what that is, right? They used to Kiss love to you. pee on everyone. Yeah. 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 I didn't even know him. And I was in the shower <laughs> and he comes in there. He comes in there with his damn boots and trunks on looking at me. And I was like, I thought he was in a. <laughs> You know, I thought he was maybe gay or something, but I heard maybe, I don't know, halfway. But um, he was looking at me. I was like, what the fuck? I gave him a dirty look. And I'd already been in the business at that time for a long time, 10 years or whatever. So I was like, no, I, don't, I didn't even know about the birdbath rib, but that's what he was getting ready to do. I know the way he was acting, I could tell, because he was standing there just getting ready. He could tell. And then I looked at him like, I'm going to kill you. And then he just walked out and, looked, and left, you know, <laughs> but I almost got a birdbath. I could tell he was going to do it. I never even knew the rib, but I heard later stories that they did to Missy Hyatt and everything when she they, she rode with them and she got out to take a pee, you know, and they were like, you're going to have to go on the side of the road like we do. And right when she was squatting down, they all came and pissed on her. You heard about that? I had not heard that. No, no. I hadn't. Oh, my God. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. That's funny as hell. But anyway, yeah, the bird bed. Johnny Valentine started that, though, because he, he liked it when they did it to him. You heard that. I've heard some sadistic stories about Johnny Valentine. Oh, Jesus. Oh, my God. Oh, my God, yeah. Greg wasn't like that. Thank God. But um, Johnny Valentine, yeah, he, Jesus. He liked to crap on everybody's bags. I don't know if that's where they got it from when they started doing Xbox and all of them. You know, and I, it wasn't just everyone's bags. The stories I had heard oh, was he, he would, and this was going back to the 50s, he would get a hotel room and unsquat yeah. beyond the, you know, having the Dairy Queen swirl, whatever it is. Yeah. But yeah. he would unscrew <laughs> yeah, yeah. the furniture and just put shit everywhere so yeah. that eventually yeah. the whole room would smell like shit, but they wouldn't be able to find where it was coming from. Yeah. They wouldn't know. Yeah. Yeah, they did that. Kurt Kurt Henney did that too later. But Johnny Valentine, he he was, he did some, you know, with that uh, asthma inhaler of Jay York. That was nasty. Almost killed him, you know, when he, he heard about that. I did, but I've actually gotten to the point where I think that may be a work only because I've heard that story Mm. so often. And I think I've heard it taking place in multiple territories. So it's like, wait a minute. Yeah, because they worked it. They worked it later is what happened. Oh, is that what, what happened it was? was? I heard it from Greg told me, uh, Greg, he said that it really happened because that guy came in and what he did was he, uh, he went out, he was a badass Jay York. He went out and got his gun and he came back in and shot, um, Valentine turned white. He was holding his big Halliburton suitcase and he shot that the suitcase. And, and, uh, Greg told me that, um, Buddy Rogers Rolex watch was inside of it and it hit that watch, the, the bullet and said, next time it's going to be you. He ever ripped me again. 
Well, say what the rib was, because the, the, the listeners may not be aware oh, of the okay. inhaler rib. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Jay York, one of the Alaskans, had uh, real bad asthma, and uh, he went, he'd come back from the ring and do his little inhaler, you know, puff. And then uh, Valentine put lighter fluid in it as a rib, and when he came back, he squared that in there and almost killed him, you know, choking to death. And then he knew Valentine did it because he was the river of all, you know. So he went out and got his shotgun or whatever kind of gun he had, some kind of big gun. He came back in, and uh, Greg Valentine told me the story. And he uh, blew the suitcase, shot the Halliburton suitcase, and said, next time with you. And then they, uh, Greg said that it went through and hit a Buddy Rogers Rolex watch. And uh, Valentine was turned white. And uh, and then uh, and then they did the rib though. Later they did it. I guess they made up or whatever. And they they ribbed people then with the same rib with a blank gun. And uh, he had fake blood and everything. <laughs> and he acted like he shot. Uh, I think it was yeah. He acted like he shot Johnny that time. And Johnny had some kind of fake blood or whatever and put it all over his shirt, his chest, and everything. And then that's why people think it was you know the fake a work or whatever. But it really happened. As far as Greg Valentine told me, that he doesn't lie. So. He's not a ripper either. So, but Johnny did a lot, so many things. I mean, one time uh, uh, Johnny was making a call in a phone booth, and uh, Jerry Graham, the famous Doctor Jerry Graham, came over and started pissing all over Johnny. And then uh, Johnny said, "Oh, the good doctor's declaring war." <laughs> <laughs> and then he, st- he had to stay. They they stayed with each other that night. So uh, they you know, and they stayed in the same room. So then uh, Johnny Valentine ate like I forget a bunch of Chinese food just on purpose to make him have a you know a really good have to take a shit and then uh, when John when, uh, of course Jerry Graham was passed out drunk and everything so Johnny gets up and shits all over him all night long oh. taking shits on uh, oh my God. Jerry Graham and then and then Graham wakes up the next day it's so damn funny I don't know if he just didn't sell the rib or what but he said oh I shit myself <laughs> and then. Uh, <laughs> Because he did do that. Because he was, he was known to do that sometimes, you know. But that's the, one of the funniest ones ever. The good the good doctors declaring war. And I was like, oh, my God. You were around Jerry Graham, weren't you? Yeah, one time. What was for, yeah, they had me pick him up and everything. He did some shots down here for, I forget who the promoter was. They were running against Eddie Graham. And it was kind of just to really piss Eddie Graham off because it's the guy that gave him, you know, his mentor. Gave him the name and everything. So he was on an outlaw show against Jerry Graham. And I was working for the office at that time for Eddie Graham, but he wasn't giving me many bookings. I just started. I told you already he was mad because Louis Tillette trained me and Louis Tillette had ran with Austin Idol and all that right against, you know, competition. So he still wasn't giving me many shows. So I, I put a hood on, a mask, and uh, worked for some outlaw show in Jacksonville. And they uh, did a TV taping, too. That was showed in Tampa. So um, Jerry Graham was there. They told me to pick him up, and he was—he seemed like he was straight at first. He thought my name was Jerry Graham too, because I said my name Jerry Gray or whatever. And he was like Jerry Gray. You're good, Jerry Graham too. <laughs> I said no, Jerry Gray. He goes, oh, they said Jerry Graham, and then he didn't seem too bad then. And then I took him to the hotel. And then he was drunk by the time we got to the uh, show to do the TV tape. It was a TV <laughs> studio, actually. And then, but he still did a hell of a good, good man. I mean, he was, I don't know how old he was, because it was like 1982. I forget how old he would have been, 50-something at least. Yeah. So he uh, he got a lot of heat and everything. I love the way he used to spit all over the audience, too. When somebody would punch him in the face or whatever, he'd have a big spit. And he'd go flying all over the audience when he would 
cellar, you know, with a big wad of spit. And then uh, he had good heat. And then I had to take him back to the hotel, though, afterwards. And then that's when that happened. They had, like, a hot tub and swimming pool. And then he always did this, I guess, because I heard other people saying it, too. And then he wanted a bunch of beer first. I got stopped and got a bunch of beer, a case of beer or something. And then uh, I didn't even drink at that time. So then he... uh getting more drunk and then all of a sudden he wants to go down to the hot tub and then he come with his <laughs> small little like bikini looking trunks and then <laughs> he, I mean, he weighed like 400 pounds at that time and then he was a nice guy though he didn't do anything bad he was just funny as hell so then he walked down there though and there was like families there and everything and <laughs> he's like you know 400 pounds in a little bikini like and uh and he's uh he lays there he's a good swimmer and all that so he floated on his back in the pool at first and had all the beer like he always did i heard uh, beer on his chest like drinking and then all the families started to leave everybody started leaving and freaking out because the kids and everything it was a big guy i looked like a he swam like a fish but maybe a whale <laughs> but anyway he uh and then he and then he got in the hot tub and he was just telling me stories about everything and then mostly about like uh, new york back in the old days and and there was another guy there. I don't know if you remember Lenny Montana, his brother, Rocky Montana. Uh, Lenny Montana was the one that was in that movie. Luca Brasi in The Godfather. God. Yeah, that's it. He yeah, had yeah. been the zebra kid, you know, as a wrestler before that, that. Yeah, 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 Lenny. Yeah, Lenny. He was champion in AWA with Hardboiled Haggerty. I Did think, you know Lenny? I mean, you're saying, like, you're saying his name like you knew him. Did you actually meet him? Not. It was his brother, Rocky Montana. I knew him real good. I worked for him. He had a construction business, and I did that on the side while I was doing Eddie Graham's giving me these, you know, two shows a week or whatever. So I was working construction with Rocky Montana, and I thought he was lying first, saying he was, uh, you know, Lenny Montana's brother and all this. And then Jerry Graham said, I remember when you and Lenny, he started telling, you know, you and Lenny in New York, blah, 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 you were the toughest one, you tougher than your brother. So it was a shoot, and then I found out, no, he's not lying. Jerry Graham was saying, all kinds of stories what he did you know with his brother so anyway yeah, i knew his brother good and then that's what happened with jerry graham no he wasn't too crazy but <laughs> a little bit with the people seeing him with that those trunks on and that the body floating around with beer on him and everything <laughs> and he was pretty drunk but he didn't do anything bad like you know he never did do anything bad that i know it's not like johnny valentine was the crazy river jerry graham wasn't a river he was just crazy and funny as hell with that he didn't do that yell though i didn't get to hear that the uh yeah! what's the yell called the war cry jesus yeah <laughs> he didn't do that i don't think he... and then the worst part was though when i went back like the tv taping the next uh wednesday morning some of the rats i mean the girl wrestling fans <laughs> told me that uh <laughs> told me that uh Hey, they know that that was you on that TV taping they did for that, and you know that little show, whatever they didn't even call it independent back then. They just said some show you did. Um, they seen the, they noticed the, your build and everything with that mask though, and then they know and they know what you, um, whoever the Booker was, Dory and Eddie Graham was the worst one to get mad. And uh, he said uh, the girl said, yeah, they know what you. And I was like, oh shit. And then I went in there and they didn't say anything, but they put um, somebody against me. I don't, what the fuck? Who it was? Um, somebody badass, you know, like uh, Haku, Ting, Tonga Haku or somebody. <laughs> Again, him, of course. Um, it was either him or a shooter, like, oh, maybe Les Thornton, because he was like, you know, Tony Charles and Billy Robinson, the shooting English style, you know? Yeah. And he, and he got me in some kind of damn thing, and I thought I was going to die. 
because he worked it though. I hated it. It was like kind of like Stu Hart. They just act like they're working with you, and then it's not like they let, tell you to defend yourself and let you know they're going to shoot on you. You know, it's like he's working the whole match, and then at the end, I let him have my body, and he just gets me in that damn some kind of choke. I mean, I had no, I have no breath left hardly. I don't know what they was trying to kill me or what <laughs> back then, you know. Then I bit his arm. I had to at the end because it was like hey, he's not gonna let go. I have no breath left. I think that was the payback for working an independent, so I didn't do any more outlaw shows after that. <laughs> but that, that was pretty, that was pretty funny. Well, you brought up Sunbelt Wrestling again. Of course, that was the group yeah. that was started by Don Curtis with Louis Tillette and Great Malenko. Were you working uh-huh. for them? You know, I've never seen it. Obviously, I've never even heard any recordings of it. I don't know if anything yeah. exists, but were you there when, you know, everyone talks about Randy Savage issuing challenges to Jerry Lawler and the Memphis promotion for years, uh-huh. but didn't that happen in Florida? Didn't the great Malenko issue challenges on the air to the championship wrestling from Florida promotion? Yeah, that wasn't Sunbelt wrestling, though. They didn't do that at all on Sunbelt because Louie, he wasn't that type of Louie. He was pretty much running it more than Don Curtis. It was Louie Tillette. And, uh, I started there, but no, that was later when I was working for the office. I was right there in the office when they were all getting really pissed about it because uh, Malenko and his sons were doing a, another uh, independent, I mean, uh, TV show that was airing in Tampa. And they, I guess they were challenging, uh, Malenko was challenging Dusty Rhodes to a match. They didn't call it a shoot or anything back then because the people pretty much thought it was anyway. So he was just challenging him to a match and then so much money is going to be donated if whoever wins or whatever. And then uh, he said his sons, uh, Dean and Joe Malenko, would uh, challenge Eddie Graham and Mike Graham yeah. to the match. And then the office didn't say, they didn't respond. That's the best way to do it, really, on TV, not to give them any air, you know, airtime. But in the, in the dressing room. Well, plus they like would have gotten their asses Alpha. kicked. Plus every one of those guys <laughs> would have gotten destroyed <laughs> against the Malenkos. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Because uh, especially Joe Joe Malenko with all the Carl Gotts training he had, I mean Jody, he I mean I don't know, he he was with Carl Gotts so much, but anyway the uh, yeah Mike Graham I don't think could have he can do the amateur so I don't think he could do the hooking like a uh, Carl Gotts trained uh, Jody to do. So um, what happened was I was in the dressing room hearing all this stuff and some of the older guys that Eddie wasn't really taking care of him very much making them referees and stuff like Gordon Nelson he was a badass too you ever heard of him Gordon Nelson the bald guy according to Ron Fuller it was Gordon Nelson who brought the sugar hold into the snake pit he was the one yeah. who introduced yeah, sugar he, hold to everyone he, in America yeah a nice quiet guy and kill you though so he was <laughs> yeah. coming back in the dress he was in the restroom and they were kind of whispering about it like Eric Embry was there too. I remember, and he was saying like, "Malenko's got some pretty big boys." And uh, I was like, what "The hell's going on?" And then, uh, and Joe Gordon Nelson was saying, "Yeah, like they're gonna kick our asses." <laughs> pretty much like some of the people, they're all shooters, and then uh, they're gonna kick their asses. Not Gordon's. And then, uh, so then here comes uh, this is the funniest, baddest ass thing I ever seen. Pretty much after Carl Gotch is with them on their uh, outlaw show against Eddie Graham with all the challenges and stuff. Carl Gotch walks into the TV taping. I mean, it's like the biggest enemy walking in and just looking right at everybody. He stood there with his look, you know, no smile, nothing. Stood there watching the monitor where we did the TV taping, a little tiny room, and then there was the office out there. I mean, the uh, studio out there where Gordon Sawyer would sit, no air condition, no windows even in the whole building. So anyway... Carl Gotch walks in, just stands there looking. 
And all of a sudden, this Eddie Graham disappeared because there was upstairs to the <laughs> office where you can go into the offices, you know. Yeah. Eddie Graham's not there. Even Matsuda, I wasn't. Nobody was around. It's just uh, Kevin Sullivan was sitting there because he was almost like the assistant booker at that time. He was sitting there and he looked up and said, "Hi, Carl." And then uh, I don't know if Carl said hi, right? <laughs> but he uh, he just looked at everybody for a while and then it was like just to show, like you know, I'm right here. Anybody wants to do anything about it? And then <laughs> that was the baddest ass thing. It was so funny because nobody came down, did anything, told him to get out or anything, you know. And he's like the big uh, competition with Malenko, opposition, whatever you want to call it, outlaw. But that was cool. That's pretty wild yeah. that he just showed up there. Just, you know, all right. Yeah, he just walked in. Yeah. Yeah, it's like walking, you know, like Eric Bischoff walking into McMahon's show and standing there looking at him. I mean, they did the bullshit thing where they're acting like they're trying to get in the building, the uh, DX or whatever. Yeah, I got to tell you some stories about Billy Gunn, too, how, how tough he is. <laughs> whoa, whoa, whoa. Before we get there, I want to touch on something else because we yeah. talked a little bit about Jake and you living with Jake and any other stories oh, okay, you have about yeah, that, yeah. we'll always listen to. But there oh. is a story I have to ask you about, and I don't okay. know it, but it's been brought up to me, so I'm going to ask you. Apparently, the okay. honky-tonk man, Wayne Ferris, tells a story about you <laughs> being with Jake, and I'm going to let you tell the story because I don't know all the details, but... You pull the gun out, Which one? <laughs> and you start running oh, after Jesus. people, and what's the story? Yeah. Okay, what happened was Jake, and this is in, like, 1998, when he was really bad on, you know, rock, crack, whatever you want to call it. And I was using him on a lot of shows, paying him a lot of money. I just did two shots, gave him, like, two grand at least he had. So we're driving. He's staying in Orlando here with me. So then he wants to go to the hood. And I didn't, I didn't do that stuff, you know. He kept trying to ask me if I wanted it, and I was like, no, I don't want it. No, go ahead. So then he said, let's go to the hood. Take me down. To, where's the hood at? And I was like, all right, whatever, we'll try it. So I took him down to the bad part, you know, the hood. So here come the guys all surrounding the car. I was like, no, don't go to my side over there, not me. <laughs> and then he's got his hand out, and they put it in his hand like some rocks, and he goes, this ain't enough. And he's standing there. Hold, I mean, he's sitting there holding like two grand in his hand. So they grab it and run and just give him like a few little pebbles of a crack or whatever. And uh, so I'm, I had a gun with me. So I'm like, hey, bullshit, I just paid you that. You got to let them steal it. And he was like, this is what a coward he was. That's one thing. I, I like Jake for all the stuff he did, but he was, I'll tell you a story with Dick Slater and him too. I forgot to tell you the rest of that one with Jake and Dick Slater's ex-wife. Anyway. So then they, uh, I was so pissed because I just paid him all that money. I was like, Jesus, you're going to let them steal $2,000 from you? So I back out, and the rocks flying everywhere. It was like a gravel parking lot flying everywhere. I was coming after all of them, you know. They're running. I mean, because there was about six guys probably standing there trying to sell them crack. And they, the one that stole it, I was just driving, trying to find him, and then I had my gun, and Jake goes, no, 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 go, just leave. They, you pull the gun, they're all going to have guns. I mean, he was almost crying, and I was like, oh, my God, you coward. You got to let them steal it, whatever. Yeah, that's what happened. Honky Tonk tells it a little different. But I don't, <laughs> what does Honky Tonk Jake, say? <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't think it's Honky Tonk. It's Jake. He, he exaggerated it and said that I got out of the car and ran down the street and was shooting at him and everything else. So I was like, oh, my God, what the hell? <laughs> I don't, I, don't exaggerate, I don't exaggerate stories. I just tell the way it happened. I mean, but that, that's enough just to show Jake how let somebody steal $2,000 and anyone want me to get it back for him. I was like, he, he don't want me to go after these guys. 
No, 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 let's just leave. I said, yeah, okay. You ain't never coming down here again either with me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so then he, uh, and then Charlotte, though, let me get to that with Dick Slater. Okay. Dick Slater is a heel too, like us. So one time we're riding with him. This is a different one. Now I get to the, the one with him and uh, Dick Slater's wife. So we're riding in Dick Slater's Porsche and I'm in the back seat and he's, He's got like a million joints rolled and he's smoking one after another. And, and then uh, he's got <laughs> the cops pull him over, right? So he uh, he has like five different driver's license, Dick Slater, and shows the cops. And they're like, he said, which one do you want? And they were just like, what the hell? And then they recognized him, of course. He was a big star up there in Charlotte. And they he couldn't remember my name because uh, I, I just met him pretty much. So they asked him who's in the car. And he went, oh, it's Snake and uh, Sonny King. <laughs> I'm Sonny King, right? <laughs> Funny Kings, <laughs> a little bit different looking than me. So then that was pretty funny. And then, uh, so then Jake didn't, I mean, Slater didn't know at that time. Jake was messing with uh, Slater's, pretty much his wife still. I don't think they were even divorced. And she was beautiful too. Because I'd go to the house and then he'd go, you know, in the room and <laughs> I'd be sitting there waiting and then uh, in the bedroom with her. And then I was like, man, what the hell? And he goes, Man, if Slater finds out, he's going to kill me. I was like, what the hell? You're a coward, Jesus. What the hell? Can't he? he goes, no, Slater will kill you. And then he, I didn't know how tough Slater was And then uh, at that time. And then uh, Jake still kept doing it, though. And, then, and I remember uh, Gary Hart would always say, with his voice, it was so damn funny. Because I rode with Gary Hart. He rode with me all the time, Gary Hart. He told me about carrying razor blades with you and stuff to defend yourself. He told me a lot of stuff. And he goes, uh Jake, he, uh, Jake would tell him he just called her Miss Good Pussy, <laughs> the lady, because he didn't want to say her. He didn't want to say her name. Miss Slater sitting right there in the dressing room with us, you know. And then uh, he's like, uh, "You going to see Miss Good Pussy again?" And my mom, are you going to see Miss uh, Good Pussy again? And uh, that's what Gary Hart would say. And then uh, Jake would be like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah." And they were talking right in front of Slater. Slater didn't have any idea. And I was like, God, I didn't have any idea either until Jake finally told me that's, that's Slater's ex-wife. I mean, Rack is still his wife. And then they just separated. And then uh, I was like, yeah, whatever. I didn't know Slater, you know, how tough he was. And then uh, so what happened was somehow Slater found out. And then Jake and him were teaming, too, at that time. So what he would do is he'd always have the baby face. Jake would hold. He'd have Jake hold the baby face, and he'd have the baby face move, and he'd knock that shit out of Jake with that punch of Slater. <laughs> he punched like a he punched like a mule, you know, a car, uh, horse. So then he uh, he hit Jake every night almost, and have the baby face move, and then he'd hit Jake for real. Jake would tell me, "Yeah, did you see that punch? It's a fucking payback." So then he got so mad because Jake kept doing it anyway, going and seeing her, and then. Uh, one night, Jake was in a parking lot in a bar, and Slater found out he was in the bar with that, that wife of his. And then uh, he was looking all over the parking lot. Jake was hiding under cars and everything else. He couldn't find He was going to kill him that <laughs> night. So I don't know why he never did finally kill him. I think Jake just begged him maybe, like, please don't, please don't. Don't hurt me, please. I'm sorry. And then, yeah, because I got in a fight with Jake once. Uh, it was so damn funny. Bushwick. I just seen Bushwhacker look at that benefit they did for me, and he he was telling everybody the story because he was there with Talky Talk Man was there. It was a big show I had in Ohio back in '99, I think it was. And Jake, this is the funniest thing ever with Jake. This was with '99 when he was really bad, and then he goes, uh, he comes to the show. I think he even drove all the way there from Texas because he didn't want to fly with his equipment, you know. <laughs> his rocks or whatever he brought with him yeah yeah so so he's so messed up and he had some girl some poor girl that he 
one of the million girls that he's used, you know, he used to do that all the time. They were always older, usually a little bit, and he would use them for everything they had. But this girl was kind of young, even. I don't know what the hell she did it for, but she lost everything because of him. So she, he had her there with him, and then he comes in the dress room. But I always had to bring the snake for him. It'd be my snake, you know, because he didn't have a snake. So you had to bring your own snake. You have a snake? No, I don't anymore because Jake <laughs> yeah. killed that one. <laughs> well, you had a snake. Wait, hold on, hold on, hold on. You had a snake and yeah. Jake killed it? I had all went through. So I don't want to say this, man, the human, humane or <laughs> whatever, the animal cruelty. Um, yeah, well, three. I had three snakes. This is 20 years ago. So I had three snakes I went through with Jake um, Python. It's like 10 foot. I didn't touch them, though. I had a friend that did uh, did all that because I wasn't into this, touching snakes, you know. So um, we'd bring it, though, and I had the ring truck and everything. I'd go to all these shows I had all over Ohio, everywhere, United States, all over the place. And I had, I just drove the truck everywhere, and I'd follow the guy in a car or whatever, the ring truck driver. And then uh, so what happened was the snake that night, Jake, Luke just told the story, like I said, Bushwhacker Luke, okay, we're in Zanesville, Ohio like 2,000 people, packed crowd, because I had, like, honky, it was back when they were all hot, I had Greg Valentine, Honky Tone Man, uh, Bushwhackers, Jake, forget who else, a lot of guys were on the show. So anyway, Jake starts getting more and more screwed up. I don't know what the hell he was on, because crack doesn't do that to you, whatever he was on. And then uh, he starts getting, oh, he wanted me to be his partner. That's what started. He wanted me to get, you know, because I was having some big shows at that time, doing good. And he's seen the, the houses and stuff, and he was like, I was already paying him damn good, and he goes, uh, "Let's be partners," you know. And then I was like, "Oh yeah, I'm just gonna give you half of the, all, every crowd for, you know, you're not gonna pay me like to be my partner." He just wanted to be my partner, like, and he just start taking half the shows of everything. And I was like, um, "I don't think so." And then uh, he got mad about that, and he started getting pissed all night long. So then he goes, "I was out there trying to do business with the building manager, you know, figure out to settle up everything." So I could pay all the guys, and he's in there tearing the whole dressing room up. I mean, he's knocking light bulbs off, breaking the holes in the wall, banging his head on the damn wall. He got so screwed up, and then he started pouring beer. I didn't even see this, or I would have killed him. He was pouring beer in the snake's mouth, beer down the snake's, into the snake, you know, his mouth. Jesus. Um, the whole beer, the whole beer, yeah. He did that, my snake, and then uh, throwing it all around and everything. And Luke told me this. I didn't even know this happened because I was out there, like I said, trying to figure out the building, how much money or whatever. So Jake was making his girl give him uh, fellatio in front of the other, all the other guys. Luke told me that, and Jesus. he doesn't lie. Wow. I was like, oh, my God, I didn't even know that happened. That's ridiculous. Anyway, so then I come back and address him and see what he did to the whole place because I'm the one that's going to lose the building now because he tore holes in the walls everywhere and everything's laying everywhere you know so then uh i come back in there and then i started telling him you know what the hell are you doing i started getting mad and he goes fuck you i said fuck me and then uh everybody started leaving the dress room you know because they were freaking out a little bit they didn't know jake's not tough so they thought you know like oh my god he's a big guy and everything so um but he just was so wild too everybody was wanting to get the hell out of there so they all went out 
<laughs> Even bushwhackers, everybody left the dressing room except for Honky Tonk Man because he wanted to see what the hell was going to happen. <laughs> Honky Tonk Man, <laughs> he wanted to see this shit. So he, he wants to see it. You know, he's got his Elvis jumpsuit on and everything. So then he goes, uh, and Jake was so screwed up. He was ripping his own hair out. He beat himself up all the time. He didn't have to even beat him up. He just banged his head on the wall. He was all tore up and then pulling his hair out. And then he threw something at me. I said, fucking piece of shit, what the hell are you doing? He goes, no. And then he starts pissing in a bottle, an empty bottle. He starts pissing in it, right? And he goes, I said, you throw that on me, I'm going to kill you. And I went over there and started struggling with him. With, and I was grabbing his hand. I thought he was going to throw it on me. And Hockey Talk's there, and it's spilling on him. He's right there sitting in a chair <laughs> where we're fighting. And it's spilling all over him. He goes, no, Jake, no, not the piss. And then <laughs> with his voice, no, Jake, not the piss. And then... Uh, and then all of a sudden, Jake goes, no, I'm going to drink it all to prove to you how much I respect you. And you won't be my partner. Vince McMahon wants to be my partner. I don't want to be his partner. And he says, uh, I'm going to drink this down to show you I respect you more than God. I was like, oh, my God. Go ahead. I don't give a shit. Don't, don't pour it on me, idiot. And then he drinks the whole damn bottle of piss down, all the way down. And hockey toss like, don't drink the piss, Jake. Come on, don't drink the piss. <laughs> and then, uh, and then, and then I, uh, he drinks it all down. This is the craziest story ever. I mean, and then hockey talk will tell you if he don't, if he, this is, I mean, I can't believe he drank it. And then, so then, and then, then he goes, then he, he gives me my money back, thousand dollars. I paid him. He gives it back to me and says, I don't want the, the fucking money. Take it back. And I go, all right, good. And then he goes, uh, I ain't working. I said, I don't, I don't think you can work the way you look. And then he goes, uh, we get in the hallway then. And then he, we start fighting again. And then ends up where he smacks me in the face so that I just grabbed his ass and bear hugged him because he don't know how to shoot or anything. You know? And I had both of his arms trapped and a bear hug. Took him down, laying on him. He's like, get off of me. Get off of me. I love you. I love you. All this stuff, you know. And I'm like, what the hell? So I was like, what the hell? So then uh, Bushwhackers watch it. It's the funniest thing through a window because they're all kind of freaking out. Like, what the hell's going on? They didn't know what was going to happen, you know. But Honky Tonk wanted to sit there and see this shit. So then uh, Bushwhacker looks at uh, narrating everything to everybody. Now he's got Jake bear hooked. Now he's got him down. And now Jake, first Jake smacked him in the face. And now, and yeah, he's, he's telling all the guys they told me later. That he's in there right now, I think, because there's a little window he's looking through watching this shit. And he goes, uh, and now Jerry's got him down. And then, oh, now, mate, uh, Jerry's let him up. And Jerry smacked him in the face now. And, and, uh, and then Jake, what the hell, Jake kissed him on the lips. Yeah, Jake, after he drank the... After he drinks the damn piss, he he kisses me on the fucking lips because he's so tall, you know. He just bent down so quick and did it. He said, I love you. I was like, what the hell? This is because we used to be, I mean, best friends. And I was like, what the hell are you on, man? Jesus. And he goes, no, I'll work, man. I'll work. I can work. And I was like, oh, Jesus. So then it's me and him supposed to be against Honky Tonk Man and Red Valentine, I guess it was. So we go out there and it's a orchestra pit, like a big three theater type place, like 2,000 people, but there's a big pit there. Like, I mean, I don't know how deep that thing was. You know what I'm talking about? An orchestra pit? Yeah, of course. And a, like a big theater? Okay, yeah. yeah. So that that's dangerous. And it's right where the ring is, you just walk a little ways and it's, so Jake's walking over there, almost falling in that. He takes the snake out and starts putting it all over the fans. Oh my God, it was horrible. Oh he, he was like, and the snake was the snake was already mad because all the beer and all the crap he did to it, you know. So he's throwing the snake on the fans, and then I was just like, "This is not gonna happen." 
So he got in the ring and he was so bad that I just said, I just changed everything. I just turned heel on him. We started all kicking him and beating the crap out of him, me, Valentine, and the hockey taunt man. And, uh, and, I, and he said, tell me to crawl out of here like the piece of shit I am. Crawl out of here. I was like, I'm not going to say that on the microphone to all these you know, kids that are Crawl out of here like the piece of shit I am. I was like, uh, okay. I said, uh, it was. I had to make it a little bit longer the match, so we just kept beating on him for a long time. And then he just wanted to get beat up and then because he couldn't stand up even really. He was so screwed up. So then he uh, crawled out. of. I said, just crawl out of here like the snake you are on the microphone, you know. And he crawled out of the, all the way to <laughs> back to the door dressing room. So then the funniest part is, I, I, you know, he didn't get the money right back, and he thinks he worked doing that kind of crap, you know, going out there, and <laughs> whatever he, whatever that's. But it wasn't really nothing, you know. So then the next day he calls. Well, he has his girlfriend call, of course. So she calls me and telling me that Jake was uh, something happened. Something fell in his coffee from the building. Rat poisons. What happened to him? So that's why he was so screwed up trying to apologize because I had a lot more shots for him to work in. He didn't want to get lose all that money. So then uh, rat poison me, fell uh, some, into his coffee. Yeah. That's the excuse. Yeah. The funniest shit ever. It's the funniest Just shit ever. Just fell out of the like, sky. Got, yeah, it fell out of the building. They had rats, and so the building had rat poison up in the up in the top of the you know the, whatever the building there the. Uh, <laughs> In the dressing room, I had rat poison. He said, and it <laughs> fell in there. And then he's, she's like, "Can you wire the money? You know, the thousand? I was like, "You gotta be fucking kidding me!" So he gets on the phone. He goes, "Yeah, man, I'm sick as hell." I said, "Maybe it's because you drank that piss." I mean, it was a lot of piss you drank. And then <laughs> he goes, "My stomach's killing me." Fucking killing me, man. I was like, yeah, okay, <laughs> the rat poison, huh? And he goes, yeah, it's fucking sick as hell. And I go, okay. So I, I had to because I hadn't had him on a lot of other shows. So I was like, I'm going to have to pay him, I guess, for whatever. That was not very much of a match, but it was a hell of a story that everybody still talks about. Yeah, that was so damn funny. I told Luke and them and all of them what, what he said the excuse was, and they were laughing because they were all mad at him anyway because he had had a show and didn't pay anybody in uh, Texas. They all were waiting for their pay. King Kong Bundy, Bushwhackers, everybody, Greg Valentine, they all wanted their money, you know, five or whatever hundred at least they got. And he, uh, after the show, he just disappeared. Didn't pay anybody right before this happened. So they're all pissed at him. And uh, they loved it when I beat his ass. <laughs> and then Luke was like, oh, he's got him down. Yeah. <laughs> and then uh, they, he didn't pay him ever, though. And they just look around like he wouldn't even talk about it and then uh, had to see their faces, you know. Well, what he did was he beat himself up again that night because Bundy was going to kill him. I don't know how tough Bundy is, but he could beat Jake for sure. But Jake was, uh, they, they came and found where Jake was. And they seen him down in the, like the basement or whatever the place was in Texas. And they seen him smoking a, a pipe, you know. And they were like banging on the thing. Where's our money at? And he came out there and he, he put his hand through a glass window. And had to go to the hospital on purpose just so that way, you know. Wow. <laughs> wow. Funny as hell. Did you end up losing the building? Um, no, actually, the guy liked it because he made a lot of money that night. He goes, uh, "Oh, we could just patch, we could just patch that up. We'll, we'll fix all that up." He was like, "What the hell's wrong with these damn guys?" You could tell his face was like, "God, what the hell happened?" <laughs> no, he uh, he put a few holes everywhere, and the restaurant was completely everything was. Fucking you know, screwed up bad. You know, I have to say, I always thought the Briscoe brothers story of Ole Anderson thinking they should take a blood oath to keep their partnership yeah. in Georgia alive was the weirdest thing. Oh, but geez. I think now the story of Jake wanting to drink a bottle of piss to show his respect for you <laughs> and why you should be partners with him 
<laughs> and he yeah. also turned down Vince McMahon. I think that's now the new standard for mm-hmm. insanity with partnerships. Oh, that is. <laughs> yeah, and Hockey Tom Man tells that story all the time. That's another one he tells. It's so damn funny. I mean, because he really tells it, you know, because, of course, they always put a little bit more onto it, you know. <laughs> but I'm telling them what really happened exactly. And it's good enough if you just tell the truth. <laughs> what happened to the snake from that night? Oh, the snake passed away <laughs> because uh, Jake, uh, the poor snake, yeah, he, I don't know what, they didn't, I wasn't in there, so I would have started beating his ass right then if I would have seen him doing, they told me that he was in there throwing it all around and everybody else was scared to death of the thing, you know, but he, he was beating on, throwing it against the thing and pouring beer in it, on his throat and then, uh, so the, the next morning it, uh, it didn't make it. Yeah, that was pretty sickening. I mean, he's—he's. He, I think he did that a few times. He got in trouble in England for doing that. That's why he had to leave England. He had a lady over there that looked like Benny Hill that he was. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> she looked just like Benny Hill, exactly. And uh, I hate—I hope she don't hear this. But anyway, she uh, she was a nice lady, but he was another one of the ones he was gigoloing with, and then uh, she lost everything, and then <laughs> he moved to England with her. Because he, uh, I'm sure you heard about the thing that happened with him up in Ohio, a homicide. Or not, well, he wrecked into somebody and they got killed, I guess, or something. Wait, what? That's why he moved to England. Yeah, and then I don't, I don't know. If, yeah, I thought that story was out. But anyway, wait, what? Wait, what happened he, in he, Ohio? Uh, I, I don't know. I, I remember him moving to England, and in fact, yeah, I don't know all the details, yeah. but I remember he had a fan club president. Cause I actually sold her Jake tapes like in the '90s. He had a fan club president was she from England who lived in England. Yeah. Yeah, what's her name? Valerie. That was it. Yeah, that that's was it. that was her. That's it. Very that's nice. Her. She was that's really her. cool. I mean, she was really nice with my yeah. Uh, she's nice. You know, oh, yeah, with she's her. nice. Yeah, she was nice. Yeah, and then she thought Jake liked her. You know that way. But I mean, it was Benny Hill pretty much. And then he and she, they made trips with me. I made sure because Jake wouldn't show up. You know, a lot of times, so I made him come stay with me because I had a lot of at that time in ninety eight, ninety nine I had a lot of fairs all over the United States and like one after another and then I had uh I just had him ride with me and hockey tall man and all of them were just like, How in the hell can you handle him? And I was I made him quit smoking crack and everything because he was in the car with me trapped, you know, he was going through withdrawals and everything. But then he said, I appreciate the help, man. I think I can make it again and he started straightening up until I'm not gonna say who, but until he got to one show I had in West Virginia. And there were some guys there that liked to do that too. And they took him off when I was in there again with the building guy or whatever. And he comes back and I could just tell he was on it again because he was like saying something. I was like, oh my God, what the hell? Who the hell got him to the fucking hood again? At least he didn't try to kiss you again. I mean, that's, <laughs> that's the benefit well, of it. Oh yeah, he, he tried more than that later, I'll tell you. Anyway, the uh, George Steele said he almost George Steele knew I had straightened him up for about two weeks. He went through withdrawals because I was just driving like from it was from West Virginia to Wyoming. We had to go and then I mean all over from like two to three thousand mile trips and stuff. And he uh, he just he straightened up because I wouldn't stop anywhere, no hoods anywhere. And I made him. I said, "You don't need it, man." And he was drinking a lot of beer though and taking like a whole bottle of some kind of damn pills. I don't know what the hell they were. So he wasn't off of everything, but at least cracked. And then. Uh, so then George Steele seen he was straightening up and he said, oh, my God, I can't believe he did this. And then when he seen that night that he fell off again, he said, I almost cried when I seen that he did it again. He said, I can't believe he was so great in mind and everything. So that's what happened there with Jake riding with me all over. But she was in the car, too, is the thing, Valerie. 
because he was using her to pay for everything and all his stuff and then her credit card and everything. <laughs> and then uh, they had a tour of the whole country because she'd never seen America. So he's going through like 3,000 miles across the United States, you know. But um, And then when it come to her at nighttime, like in the hotel, <laughs> she wanted to be romantic. And Jake was just like, uh-uh. He didn't want that, you know, with her. That was the funniest part. She was always saying, I want, you know, and he'd be like, I don't feel good. He'd come over to my room and say, tell me, like, she's trying to get me to do this. That. I was like, oh, God. He should have told her that rat poison fell into his drink. Yeah, he probably did. <laughs> and then he, uh, he, he I don't know if I can tell this. Well, that's too much, I think, one of them. But, uh, yeah, that's some of Jake's stories. There's so many. I mean. But he, I still like him, even though he owes me two thousand dollars that I'm never going to see again. He, uh, what does he owe you two thousand dollars from? No, because he no shot. He gave him a thousand dollars a match, and he the last shows that he worked on, he no showed both of them and kept the money. He'd always tell me, "Oh, that happened all the time." Back in the, when I had a lot of shows and I had money, and in the '90s, late '90s, he said uh, he'd always call me and say that he's in jail. He's going to jail. Wire the money. I got to get him out of jail. And I know it wasn't that, you know, but I would do it. So he get the money up front all the time. So he got all that money up front again, and that time he didn't show up to either show. So, <laughs> and I still had the snake. He's doing DDP yoga now, and he seems to be rather healthy. I'm sure he could maybe earn the $2,000 to pay you back. Yeah, he won't even return my emails, and, and I, I emailed him and everything, and it, nothing happened. Only thing that happened was Sam Houston showed up on my door one day about his brother, probably four or five months ago. Yeah, and I didn't even know him. I mean, I, I worked him one time in WWF, but I've never really even talked to him. I don't know him. So he, uh, I didn't know who he was. I mean, I kept, I was looking through the window. I'm like, who the hell is this guy? He keeps coming here, banging on the door. And I was, he had a beard. He looked a lot different. And then, uh, so I finally opened it because I thought it was the nurse that comes here. And he, he was like, hey, man. I was like, who are you? <laughs> he goes, Sam Houston. I went, oh, shit. So he came in. He was nice and everything, but. He said that Jake, uh, what was it? Jake was living in Vegas, I think he said at that time. And he said that uh, on a stand-up, he talks about stories that, with me and him a lot, you know, the stuff I'm telling you right now. And I was like, oh, yeah, okay. <laughs> Maybe I can get some money back from the U.S. man, but that's not going to happen. I know that. But one time he did um, owe me when he left to go to Atlanta to be the booker, you know, in 82. What was it, late 83? 83, yeah. When the Road Warriors. Yeah, okay. So he was with me all those. We lived together almost, what, eight months. And then he was going to be the booker in Atlanta. And right before he left, he decides he wants to borrow $400 from me. So I'm like, you got to be kidding me. He don't have no money again. So I loaned it to him. And he said, I'll give it right back to you. So he's in Atlanta, right? So I, I'm like, I want my fucking money. And he wouldn't He wouldn't return. He didn't have no phone, you know, no cell phone. So I called um, the Georgia wrestling office. <laughs> No, I didn't know. Well, I met Ole Anderson one time, and he was an asshole. When I uh, worked for the uh, TBS tapings, you know, I told you my first match against Ernie Ladd. Yeah. First match was against Ernie Ladd. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I'm like, oh, my God, of all guys, the biggest damn guy here. And uh, Ernie Ladd, but he was so easy. I was like, do I even sell this? He didn't even touch me. Jesus. So, anyway, that was funny. But the um, thing was, Ole Anderson came in. It was George Scott was the booker at first. That's when Piper I first met, too. Piper came in there. He was doing the commentating, you know, TV with the Gordon Sully, the yeah. commentating. Piper. Okay, Piper came in the dress room and was talking about Don Owens and 
talking like him and everything. I didn't get it until I went to Oregon. Then everybody does impressions then of Don Owens. I don't know. <laughs> so once you go there, it's like in your brain, like they're so damn weird, goofy people. Elton Owen and Don Owen, especially Elton. But anyway. So Piper's there. Here comes Ole. An- okay, Ole Anderson took over after a few weeks of uh, George Scott at first, and then Great Mephisto was really nice too. He was there when I I worked uh, Torquemada, and Mephisto was his manager. Ray Stevens, I worked too, and he was a nice guy. And then uh, here comes Ole Anderson to be the booker, and he goes. This one guy was with me was acting kind of goofy. I didn't want to do that. He was wanting to take pictures. One of the other guys that Louis Tillet trained. He wanted to take pictures with everybody in the dress room, and nobody did that back then, even though I had one or two kind of, but it was like the biggest stars in wrestling were there. I mean, it was like Dusty Rhodes, Ric Flair, Harley Race, everybody was there, you know, Piper, everybody. You know how TBS was then, it's so hot in 81. Yeah. So here comes, uh, okay, here comes Ole Anderson, and this guy tells me to take a picture of him with somebody, Terry Gordy might have been. And I, I'm taking the picture, and Ole Anderson sees me, and he goes, he thought I was a mark because I had my clothes on still and everything. I, I already wrestled and everything. And he goes, uh, he thought I was a fan. He goes, hey, 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 what are you doing in here? And I was like, I'm a worker. And he goes, yeah, who trained you? And the, for once, Louis Tillet, the name worked because Ole Anderson loved Louis Tillet. I said, Louis Tillet, and he goes, oh, where are you training? And then he found out it was true, you know, and he was like, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Yeah, he was nice then, but at first it was like trying to throw me out of the dresser. I'm like, I'm a worker, Jesus. I'm taking damn pictures. It ain't my fault. This guy wanted me to take a picture of him with Terry Gordy, but he uh, he was nice then. So then when I, a couple of years later, when I was in Charlotte, Jake owes me this 400, and he's in the office there, and Ole Anderson's there too. So I told Gene, because he lived with me still. I still live with Gene still for a lot longer. Just me and Gene, because my girlfriend even left things to Jake. <clears throat> I think he was messing with her on the side. And another thing I forgot to tell you, <laughs> yeah, when I'd be on the other shows, because they had three shows a night, Jake sometimes was off, you know, and my girlfriend would be there uh, at the house, at the uh, apartment. He sounds like and, a great friend. And I heard, <laughs> yeah, I heard that, uh, you know, that something was going on, like maybe. Anyway, the, uh, the funniest part was Gene. I went to him and told him that Jake owes me four hundred dollars, and Gene was a you know stand-up guy. He didn't like people doing that kind of crap, especially when the Briscoes did the trunk gimmick. He got so damn mad, and then so did Greg Valentine. They said you could have got carbon monoxide poisoning. And they were all getting mad at the Briscoes, telling them off and everything. They were pissed. Gene was really bad, but then they did it to Gene too, tough as he was. They got him on. He didn't do any drugs, nothing. And they got him, Briscoe's ribbed him once and got him all screwed up and gave him, put it in his drinks or something, uh, all kinds of Placidils and everything. And Gene was older, you know, he didn't do any drug or nothing. They had him so screwed up and ribbing him and put him in the back of their pickup truck and were driving all over and he was sliding out, almost falling out. He was trying to hold him on. <laughs> Briscoe's even ribbed him. It was like ridiculous. Yeah, I didn't like those ribs. But anyway, so what happened was I told Gene, he lived right there with me. So he goes, okay, we'll go call Ole. So we go to the office and call Ole Anderson, and he puts me on the phone with Ole. <laughs> and I'm like, uh, Jake, it was Ole's booker, you know, I don't know if Ole, he, I think he owns probably half of Georgia at that time, maybe. Ole and the Briscoes did too, you know, and Jim Barnett. So Ole goes, well, I said, he owes me $400, and Gene goes, the kid needs his money. And then Ole goes, well, I can't take it out of his pay, you know, uh, and I go, well, Tell him to send me the damn money or I'm coming there to get it. And then uh, he goes, I'll tell him, you know, like, what the hell? And then he told Jake, I guess. And then Jake called and said, take it easy, man. I'm going to wire it. 
And then, uh, yeah, I'm going to wire it into you. And then I went to the bank. It wasn't there. And I had to keep running back and forth. No cell phones, you know, and find a phone booth to call him back. And he's like, it's there now. Go. And then I just made his ass. I'm coming there to get the damn money if you don't give it. And then he did send it because I was going to, he knew I was going to get his ass. And then uh, I remember it was so funny because he finally sent it. But I had to almost pretty much force him to. So that's one story. What a wonderful friend. Me. I mean, you must miss those yeah, nights of being able me. to go out with him and, you know, just hit on other wrestlers' oh, girlfriends and have a nice glass of piss. Yeah. Oh, the piss bar, I really miss, yeah. <laughs> so that was a hell of a story. That story's got to live on forever. Thanks to Honky. Honky loves that story. He loves the gun story even better, though, I think. And then the riot story. The riot we had. They call, they call it a riot. The, uh, Which riot? <laughs> the time... Uh, Oh God! In Montana, we had uh, they still didn't. It was still more like uh, in '97, I think it was '98. It was a Montana fair, and it was like a huge coliseum they had, and there was like I mean at least three thousand people there, and uh, it was Jake against Honky Tonk Man. And all of a sudden, I'm standing there. I'm running the show, right? And the cop asked me, he "Goes, you ever have any problem with fans jumping in the ring?" I said, "No, not that I haven't been anymore." Next thing I know, from each side of the ring, a guy came. Four guys came in the ring <laughs> right when the cops said that. I was like, what the hell? And then I ran down to the ring, and, I mean, honestly, they were beating Jake up. I was like, oh, my God, this is embarrassing. Instead of usually the boys kick the guy's ass when they come in the ring, you know? So this guy's got Jake down, and Jake can't get loose. And then uh, everybody's down, honestly. I don't want to say anything bad about my friend Hockey. Um but uh, everybody's down. I mean, and the, and the fans got them down, right? So then I came in there and started punching everybody, and the cops got them, and then the referee stretched a couple of them, too. <laughs> the referee did. <laughs> so anyway, yeah. <laughs> That's the funniest thing. But now it turned into a riot with 50 people hit the ring. That's what some guys say. <laughs> So anyway, Jake says that and that way it all looked bad. Like one, two guys, the one guy beat him up. Yeah, it was one guy because there was four guys, but it only took one. So the match was stopped like for a while. And I was like, oh my God, it's embarrassing. Beat the wrestler's ass. And then we got to come save him. The promoter has to come save him. Hockey even said, the promoter come in there and kick the ass. I've never seen this happen. And then uh, yeah, that was a funny story too. It's still, he still talks about that. Hockey tells some good ones. He sure does. No, I like Hockey Tom, man. I like him, though, because he's never missed a show. I've used him. All, I mean, all the years I used him, he was never even late. Of all the guys, everybody else always, well, Bushwhackers never did either, but, I mean, everybody else always had something, and there was something would happen. They lose, you know, they couldn't make it, like Rick Steiner and Buff and all the people wouldn't. Everybody would, sometime they would say they can't make it, try to send somebody else in their place or something would happen. So, anyway, Hockey Tom was good about that, really, definitely. Uh, well, oh, what a series of stories <laughs> you have just shared with us here. Uh, the glass of piss oh, will live man. in infamy as well as the, the gun and just oh, everything else. Man. But before we get going with oh, the rest man. of the show here today, Jerry, I want to tell the listeners yeah. a little bit about our friends, the wrestling fans over at Ramsore Records. And of course, you can go to ramsorerecords.kungfustore.com and use the promo code 605 at checkout and save 20%. On all purchases, once again, ramsorerecords.kungfustore.com, R-A-M-S-E-U-R, Ramsor Records. And I want to tell you a little bit about David Childers. We've talked about him in the past, and of course his album, Run Skeleton Run. But now I want to tell you a little bit about some upcoming shows. He'll be playing five shows together in the next couple months with Kyle Petty. 
Many of you who are NASCAR fans may recognize that name. Kyle Petty, he'll be playing with David Childers at these upcoming dates, March 2nd. They'll be at the Spinning Jenny in Greer, South Carolina on March 16th, at the Cat's Cradle Backroom in Carborough, North Carolina on March 18th, at the Muddy Creek Music Hall in Winston-Salem, North Carolina on March 20th, at the Evening Muse in Charlotte, North Carolina, your old stopping ground, Jerry, and of course on April 19th at the Willow Tree Coffee House in Johnson City, Tennessee. Jim Cornette's old stomping ground. You can get more information <laughs> as well as tickets by going directly to davidchilders.com. And once again, I want to remind everyone the album Run Skeleton Run available at Ramsor Records dot kungfustore.com. Ramsor Records, the mid-Atlantic wrestling of the music industry. And with that, Jerry, let's go to this segment. It's time for a return of a very popular segment, Front Row Section D with John Hitchcock, of course. John wrote the book, Front Row Section D. You can get that by using the link tinyurl.com slash superpod Amazon. And you can get that book. It's filled with some of the great stories John shares on this show, as well as many others. But today we're going to talk a little bit about some of the chaos he caused at ringside. Nikita Koloff, Dusty Rhodes. Why did everyone hate John and his fellow members of the Front Row Section D ringside crew? Let's hear a little bit more about that right now. Let's go to Front Row Section D with John Hitchcock. It's time for another story of troublemaking in the Mid-Atlantic with our friend John Hitchcock. Hitch, welcome back to the show. It's great to be back. Thanks for the invite. I don't know this story, so I'm fascinated with it, but you said something about Jim Cornette and Dusty's father. Oh, yeah, yeah. That That's in the book, Front Row Section D, but it, it was it was one of those, you know, it's one of those things you're sitting there and you're watching the Georgia show that win, 605. Anyway, and Cornette comes out, and they're setting up a feud with uh, with Dusty Rhodes. And was, was I get maybe was he Miss Nikita then? Maybe. But anyway, Cornette gets out there with with Bobby and Stan, and Cornette tells this does this interview about how they're going to be in this feud with uh, the American Dream, Dusty Rhodes, and he said he wanted to get an inside scoop on how to defeat the man, and what better way to figure out how to defeat him was to go back to Dusty's roots and go to his hometown, and maybe he can find something out that he, they can use, you know. And so Cornette's telling this story, and he's real serious about it. And he goes, so I went down to Texas. And um, where, where was Dusty from? What would he call it? Austin, Texas. Uh, Austin. He goes to Austin, Texas. And he goes down there, and, uh, and, he's, and, he's, and he said he's, he's walking around, and he's talking to people. And he's trying to find out everything he can about Dusty Rhodes and his family. And then he, he found something out very interesting, that every time he asked somebody about Dusty's father, they said that he was not – it turned out he was not a plumber. It turned out that Dusty Rhodes' father was a cobbler, and the reason why he was convinced that, his fa- that Dusty's father was a cobbler is because whenever he asked anybody around town in Austin about Dusty's dad, they always referred to him as a black loafer. <laughs> now, when he says that, and then Cornette does it, and like, bang, you know, just the way Jimmy does, you know, he, he immediately shifts gears and starts saying, Dusty, we know about you, we're going to get you, blah, blah, blah. When he does that, even Bobby started laughing. And and Stan rolls his eyes like, holy shit, where'd that come from? That's funny. So I said, you know, we got to do something with that. So Greensboro was interesting in the fact that main event was always flair. Rarely did we ever have something else other than flair on top because we were the A show, right? So we always got the top guy. So anyway, so I make up this sign. And the sign is, it's a small sign. And I, and it, I drew a picture of a black shoe and I just, and I put over the top, Dusty's father. <laughs> it's a simple little sign. 
And it was so stupid that, I'm, I mean, I, I, I didn't think anybody would get it. But anyway, out come walking to the ring comes Dick Murdoch, who was one of the all-time talented guys who never got his due. And Dick Murdoch comes out. He's managed by Cornette. And I just hold the sign up. Cornette sees it and doubles over laughing. He is screaming laughing. And he grabs Murdoch and he goes, you got to see this. You got to see this sign. Murdoch doesn't get it. He's got a totally quizzical look on his face. You know, like, what the hell is that? Dusty's father. What the, you know, what's this? That? And Cornette's howling. I mean, he's just busted up laughing. So they have the match and it's just a kind of a jobber match thing and of course Murdoch picks the guy this guy up for the brain buster thing which was he did it just he held him straight up and dropped him straight down it was beautiful and then Murdoch just goes nuts grabs the house mic and starts yelling that he wants Dusty Rhodes to come out right now he wants to fight him and you can see Dick Murdoch's calling out his old buddy because he wants to move to the top of the card he's tired of being in the middle of you know the early matches he wants to make some money and so he's yelling for Dusty to get up there now, what made this kind of interesting was we're listening to this and we're like, you know, he's got a good point. So we started chanting because Dusty did not come out. And we start chanting, Dusty's yellow, Dusty's yellow. Well, <laughs> Dusty's yellow, Dusty's yellow. Dick Murdoch's in the ring with the house mic and he suddenly turns and looks at us and he goes, that's right. All right. And he jumps out of the ring and he runs down to us and he's got the mic and he holds the mic for the front row to chant over the mic. <laughs> that Dusty's a coward. Cornette is like peeing in his pants. He doesn't know where the hell this is going. And he's holding the mic. And I want to add one more thing. They had just put in a new PA system. This thing was loud, and this <laughs> mic was hot. You could hear it everywhere. And they're, we're chanting, Dusty's yellow, Dusty's yellow. And then Dick Murdoch gets ready to grab the mic to pull it away. And I said, one second, Captain Redneck. And he goes, yeah. And I grabbed the mic and I went, and he sucks too. <laughs> and the crowd went crazy. They're, you know, I'm, I'm attacking, you know, I'm attacking the legendary American dream. And then Murdoch steps back and he's got a smile on his face and he salutes me and then walks off, you know, hands the mic to uh, Shivani or whatever and walks off. And we're like, oh, man, that is so funny, you know. And the next day we had heard there was some kind of ultimatum from the office that from then on you couldn't use the house mic anymore on the house <laughs> show because it pissed Dusty Rhodes off so bad. So um, that was that was just so great and so funny. And uh, and we couldn't believe that he did it. So it's, it's intermission. And I go I got a couple of my, my guys with me. And I'm going up to go to the bathroom, and suddenly I'm surrounded by about 10 guys and a couple, 10 people, a few women and a bunch of guys. And they go, there's that asshole. There's that guy. And, and they go, how dare you say that Dusty's yellow? Dusty Rhodes is a great man. He's an, all, he's an American. Blah, blah, blah. These people are going crazy. And this lady runs up to me, and she goes, how dare you say that Dusty Rhodes is a coward? And I looked at him, and I'm, I swear to God, I wish I was Bruce Lee. You know what I mean? I mean, you know, beat everybody up, run away. But I'm like, I'm like, think, think, think. And I went, well, he obviously is yellow. You think Dusty Rhodes is hard of hearing? You don't think he could hear that? Dick Murdoch's a real man, a man's man. He challenged him to fight. I didn't see Dusty Rhodes dragging his fat ass down there and getting in the ring and taking some, taking, taking on Dick Murdoch. You know why he doesn't want a piece of Dick Murdoch? Because he's just like you. He's scared of big dick. And I said that, that lady was so shocked that I said that, and, and that, that I, I beat a hasty retreat into the bathroom and got, got to take a whiz. And then I was able, then I waited, and then I basically very quickly 
rank got to the seats where the front row was because these people wanted to kill me. They wanted to beat me up because I besmirched, besmirched the legendary name of the American Dream Dusty Rhodes. So that was a that was a gift from Jim Cornette and his boys. I gotta think Dusty hated you because not only was Dusty making himself the top babyface and he did not take any sort of heat when he was a babyface. Uh, he he didn't take being heckled very well, but also he's the Booker and. He also didn't take having his ideas shat on very well. Well, you know, I, uh, the story about uh, Dr. Tom Miller, who was the ring announcer, and he also had a regular job as Trucker Tom. He had a radio show, you know, uh, locally, and everybody liked Tom Miller. And he was a great announcer. Yeah. Uh, terrific, terrific, you know, uh, you know, voice and great at great, just terrific at his job. And um, and one day, we, we after the matches, we'd all go to Shoney's because it was open till you know, one or two o'clock. And the match is usually in by 11, 11.30 sometimes. Yeah, probably about that. But uh, we'd go to Shoney's, and the place would be packed out. And we get there a little early, and we'd get a table. And we had a couple extra chairs, and Dr. Tom comes in with his uh, son. And his son goes uh, – his son's with him. And, and I saw Dr. Tom, and they're waiting to sit down. And I yelled at him. I said, hey, hey, Tom. Hey, Dr. Tom, why don't you come over and join us? You know, have, a, you know, have something to eat with us. And he looked at me kind of wiry like, I don't know. You guys are those sign guys. You guys are crazy. And he said, well, what the fuck? He came in and sat down with us, and we started talking to him. And it was funny as hell. We said we were like, and he just he he suddenly looked at me, and we were talking about wrestling, and we're talking about the show and all that stuff. And he was he was a really great guy. And he just goes, you know, he said, uh, he said, you know, it's uh, two of the guys that you stick it to the most are the ones that are the most deserving. And I went, oh really? And he goes, yeah. He says, he goes, Ricky Morton is a snot nosed punk, and you need to and you need to keep sticking it to him. And I went, well, we don't like the Rock and Roll Express, you know, so that's cool. And he goes, and, you know, Jimmy Garvin thinks he's a better wrestler than Ric Flair. He is so conceited. So whatever you do, do it for me. I always make a sign and give them shit. And I went, don't worry, you got it covered. And I looked at him and I said, what about Dusty? And he was eating and he, and he, and he stopped and he looked at me with a fork and he kind of pointed at me. And he goes, you need to be careful <laughs> because Dusty, Dusty hates you. And I said, oh, come on. We're just stirring up the crowd and everything. He goes, no, 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 no. He said, look, Dusty Rhodes is the booker. We kind of knew that. Dusty Rhodes is the booker, and Dusty Rhodes is the trail boss, and he tells everybody who's going to win and who's going to lose. And every time you stick it to Dusty Rhodes and you give him shit, everybody in the locker room is laughing their ass off because they wish they could do that. So whatever you do, keep doing it because the boys love it because you're able to stick it to the boss. But the bottom line is, if you ever are in a dark alley with Dusty Rhodes, he is going to beat your ass because he hates your guts. And I looked at him and I said, well, that's good because I hate his guts, too. I said, who the hell booked this shit? <laughs> Jesus Christ. He does the same finish every damn time, Tom. I mean, you got Jesus. You know, he's like, well, yeah, that's that's politics. I, he, I don't want to go there. So we always kind of went after <laughs> we always kind of went after him. You know, I just remember Dusty to the end of his run as a wrestler. And he came out with the Road Warriors as the six-man champs, and he had his face painted like the Road Warriors. And we just sat there and started laughing at him. We were pointing and laughing, going, who's the fat guy with the two big strong guys? <laughs> <laughs> and he walked over and took a – he spit at us, and he grabbed his crotch and just told us to fuck off. And I'm like, I'm like, thanks, American Dream. You know, you're the Tower of Power, brother. Thanks. But that happened all the time. He always gave, he always grabbed his crotch. He always spit at us or, you know, he took it all, he took it all real seriously. And, you know, the sad thing about it is, if you really think about it, if Dusty Rhodes, after superpowers, would have just decided to retire from the ring 
and then come out of retirement once or twice a year, like a Bill Watts thing, you know, where they, they're in a bad spot and they want to call somebody, call Oklahoma, bring in the big cowboy, and then bring him as a special attraction. Right. Dusty could have milked that for years, and then he could have proved to everybody that he was a wrestling genius, that he was the smartest guy in wrestling, and by showing off his booking ability. But his ego was so big, he would not take a step back. He would not take he, – he kept going in the ring. And one night, he was – there was a uh, God, War Games thing. And, you know, it was Tully and Arn and Flair and uh, God, who else? I mean, it was it was it was a it was a pretty big deal. And then what happened was, you know, Dusty had the Road Warriors and Dusty had the Steiners probably or somebody. It didn't really matter. But what happened was Dusty, you know, lined up Tully, Arn, Flair and J.J. and hit them all with the atomic elbow, like boom, 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 you know, like just hitting them with the elbow. And they're all jumping up and down like marionettes on strings. Boom, 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 boom. And then he, then he hit every one of them, boom, 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 and knocked them all down. And then he walked around, and the crowd cheered. And then somebody hit him from behind, and Dusty went over, sat on the second turnbuckle, pulled out a blade, gashed himself, and sat there and bleated. And he sat there and just waited. And then he took his cowboy boot off. And then when Tully Blanchard finally climbed to the top rope to jump off to attack somebody, Dusty jumps up, hits him with the cowboy boot, and then pins him one, two, three. And they roll out and leave. And I was like, God, that is, he's so lazy. He's so damn lazy. I mean, you know, I mean, come on. If you can't do it anymore, you can't do it anymore. There's no, there's no harm in that. And let's face it, he was one of those charismatic guys who ever lived. He's one of the greatest interviews of all time. And, you know, and there's no wrong. There's, no, there's nothing wrong with saying I can't do this anymore, and I'm going to step back, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to apply my trade somewhere else and continue to be active and be, be effective. I guess he learned that too late because he finally started doing that kind of stuff with the uh, NXT stuff, you know, as basically a trainer and a voice for those people but that's just cool but what do you think did you ever run into him did you ever get to talk to him after the fact obviously during those years you did not want to run into dusty roads but whether it was when he returned in 91 to be booker or whether it was at one of the conventions in the last decade or so did you ever get to run into him only one time he was uh, he was at the thing in charlotte the charlotte uh, mid-atlantic legends thing and there was a long line of legends there was jack and jerry briscoe there was uh hansen and um and there was it was Harley Race and Dusty Rhodes, and I've got a poster collection of those Mid Atlantic shows, right? And so I went up to uh, Race and asked him to sign the famous plane crash night, where uh, they had the tournament for the U.S. belt in Greensboro and set the attendance record on the East Coast. And I got I got Harley to sign that, and I asked Dusty to sign the the night of Johnny Valentine and Dusty, where they we talked about that last time, where they shot the feud. You know, I talked about Bowden, where they shot the feud with uh, setting up Dusty versus. Johnny Valentine to bring in Wahoo to set up that feud. Yeah. And he signed and Dusty signed that. And when I handed the the night of the of the, the plane crash tournament, the US tournament, he looked at me and he realized who I was and he goes, No, I'm sorry, I'm not signing that. You can move on. Oh wow. And I went I went, Okay. Just like that's fine. Wow. And um and then uh, another time, um, he was on the other side of the room and I went up to uh Terry Funk. And I asked Terry Funk, I have, a, I have a poster where Terry Funk was world champion in Greensboro, and he was fighting Dusty, you know, top in the main event. And it was a really cool poster because it had a great picture of Terry Funk with the world belt, you know, the NWA belt. And I went up to Terry Funk, and I said – and I was kind of scared because the, the poster's so great. I thought Terry might ask me for it, and I'm kind of a sucker for giving people shit, you know, that are – you know, I, I kind of – you know, I'm big fans of. But, and, he, and, he, and it was great because Terry looked at me, and he goes, 
oh, oh, what's your name again? I said, I said, I'm John, John Hitchcock from Greensboro. And he goes, John, this is a wonderful poster. I think this is just marvelous. And I'm so glad that you saved this wonderful poster for me. And, and, and I, I'll be honored to sign this poster because it, it, this is a very good likeness of me. And he goes, well, let me sign this for you, John. And I went, thank you, Terry. And the whole time I'm scared because Terry Fox scared the shit out of me. And uh, he signed it. And then he said, well, where's, where's Dusty Rhodes? Dusty Rhodes is the, uh, I believe Dusty was the main event of this show. And, and Dusty has not signed your poster. Where, where, where is, where's Dusty at? Does anybody know? Does anybody know where Dusty's at? Is Dusty here? Is Dusty around here? And Terry's yelling across the thing. And I look over and I see Dusty, and he looks and he sees me, and Dusty gets up and just leaves the room. And le- I'm standing there, and then Terry Funk's great. He goes, John, excuse me a minute. For ju-. he goes, just excuse me for a second, John. Uh, what was what I used to call Dusty Rhodes back in the old days? I said, uh, I said, was it a uh, was it horse teeth? And he goes, no, that was Ric Flair. Ric Flair was horse teeth and banana nose. Now, what did I used to call Dusty? Oh, I remember. Where's that egg-sucking dog? Where's that Dusty Rose? I want him to come over and sign this poster for my good friend, John. He came all this way. Tell Dusty to get his ass over here right now, because I'm Terry Fox, the Texas outlaw. And I was crying. I was laughing so hard. And Dusty ran away. He wouldn't do it. Yeah. It, I, and they I, say I wrestling's fake. Well, I, I think I hurt his feelings. You know, what can I tell you? He definitely hurt my feelings. I was paying to watch that shit. You, you talked on Jeff Bowden's show about running into Ricky Morton years later and you guys being cool. Was there anyone yeah. else who had hard feelings, you know, years after the front row section D era? Boy, that's tough. Um, I never have talked to Nikita. Um, I think there was heat there. Did I ever tell you that story? No. Um, well, we, we were, um, this was when during the Crockett Cup. One of the Crockett Cups, and the and the co-main event was the Crockett Cup, and then Flair versus Nikita. I think that's and, eighty-eight. Um, yeah, yeah. So um, that was one of those interesting shows where we got tickets for you know Meltzer and a lot of the other sheet guys. I think Bowden and Flaherty were there on the other side, Mike Gunner, and uh, and we had our front row group, you know, on the other side. And uh, so the match starts, and you know, it's um it's it's the the Flair um, Nikita match is just before the finals of the Crockett Cup. And the match goes about three minutes, and suddenly Nikita is on the middle of the mat, and Flair's working a hammerlock on him, and he just lays there. And the match is three minutes old. And I'm like, I cannot believe in a big show like this that this guy is gone to a rest hold. You know what I mean? I mean, really? Already? You know, you're you're blown up? I mean, what the hell? So I just said, you know, I looked at looked at the guys, and I said, I'm I'm going after him. And I started yelling at him. I said, hey, Nikita, you going to a rest hold already? Jesus Christ. I mean, the match just started. I said, my God, anybody can have a match with Ric Flair. I mean, Ric Flair could have a match with a broomstick. Ric Flair is a genius. And yet he can't carry your lazy ass. I mean, come on, get up, do something. You're supposed to be this big badass guy. And what are you doing? You're laying on your belly, just sitting there. When I started hammering him, Flair starts laughing. And Flair puts a hammer. He's got a hammer lock on on Nikita, and he's he's working it. But Flair's laughing. He's starting to crack up because I'm just like hammering him, and I was just like, God Almighty, you suck! And I totally broke. I, I bro- usually I'm kind of cool, but I went nuts and said, Man, you suck! I mean, you know, you used to be such a badass when you were with Ivan and and Crusher, and look at you now. You don't do shit. You're just lazy. You're lazy turd. And I started <laughs> I just ripping him, and. And suddenly Nikita works his way up to his feet, and I went, oh, my God, everybody. He stood up. He got the strength to stand up, and he grabs Flair, and he throws Flair through the ropes right at us, just slings Flair at us. And he jumps out of the ring, and he grabs Flair, and he lays the boots to him or something. And then suddenly he just walks over to me, and he goes, I suck. 
you suck, motherfucker. He's right in front of me. He is. I'm sitting down, and he's right hovering, and he's screaming at me. And I went, and I looked at him, and I said, how does it feel to know that you're the worst wrestler in the world? Jesus Christ. A rest hold? God almighty, you suck. And he goes, he said, I suck. You suck, motherfucker. And then he does like the puppy pump, like thrusts his hips at me a couple times. And he goes, and he goes, fuck you. And I stood up and I gave him the finger as he was turning around. Notice he was had a little bit of distance because I didn't want him to grab my ass because then I'd be dead because he was big as shit. He weighed about 280. He was jacked up. Anyway, if you ever see that tape, and it does exist, they cut it. They cut that scene out, and they show Flair crawling away. But if you look closely to the right, you can see Nikita thrusting his hips at me, screaming at me <laughs> like, a, like a crazy man. And I look over, and all the other guys that were not part of the front row that we got the seats for on the other side, they're standing there looking, going, what the hell is going on? I mean, this net, what, what the? and it just became a thing. You know, I mean, we cheered for the bad guys. And Nikita, when he was a bad guy, we cheered for him, you know, we cheered for him. But if he went to babyface, we'd turn on you, you, you know, and that's just the way it was. We always stayed in character where we always cheered for the bad guys. And uh, that was the way it was. So I've always been a little, a little leery of Big Nicky, a little leery of Big Nicky. Well, let me ask you a couple questions. First of all, when Nikita's yelling at you that you suck, in fact, is he doing it in the Russian accent? Yes, yes. Okay. I suck. You suck, motherfucker. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yes, right. he did not break. Uh, he did not totally break character. He. Uh, I, I'm glad. It, I'm glad Russian in Russian, you suck and motherfucker are the same words in, in American. <laughs> in American Russian, the same word. But uh, no, I, he was a guy that I was a little worried about, and I always tried to keep distance because that night he snapped, and he he was. I, I'm really surprised he didn't. Um, try to climb over climb over the rail and just jerk me up because he could have easily you know he was one night we decided to go after the road warriors and uh started i started hammering those guys and um i started calling them leather boys and you know there's there's a phone call from san francisco and and started like really giving them some shit and then suddenly hawk just jumps out of the ring jumps over the rail runs into the crowd about five rows deep and he's coming for me right and I'm like, this is not going to be good because this guy is on a roid rage from hell. And instead, he takes a left and he jerks up this guy from New Jersey, this some Yankee guy. And he goes, OK, you say I suck. You say I'm a leather boy. And the guy's frozen in fear, frozen in fear. And he's looking at him and he's twice as big as any human being you've ever seen. And he goes, I tell you what. Why don't you take a shot? I'll give you first shot. You can go ahead and hit me right now. Go ahead and hit me. I'll let you have first shot. Go ahead. Hit me, you big pussy. And the guy's frozen. And I'm sitting there going, oh, God damn, I'm glad he didn't go me. And, <laughs> and, and the, guy would, the guy didn't swing, thank God. And then, then Hawk just looked at him and he says, see? See all your friends? See all your friends? This guy's nothing but a coward and a big fucking pussy. And he's screaming and spits flying all over the guy and everything. And I'm sitting there going, God almighty. And then later I suddenly realized, you know, the road warriors are not a smart team to yell at because they have more powerful lawyers than me and they have more money than me. So they could probably kill my ass, beat the shit out of me and then laugh about it later and then just pay it off where I'm going to be walking around in a wheelchair forever. So we kind of stayed away from hammering the road warriors because we thought they were a little too volatile and, we, and could snap at any time. Big Eddie, my hero, Big Eddie Beeson was sitting beside of me and I said, man, I thought he was going for me. I thought Hawk was going to fucking kill me. And he looked at me and he goes, don't worry, John. I wouldn't let that happen. 
Now, Big Eddie was going to take on Hawk for me. So he is my hero, and he saved my life. And today, we should all say thank you to Big Eddie, because I wouldn't be doing this podcast if Big Eddie wouldn't. It was going to step up for me and take the bullet from Hawk. How big was Big Eddie? Big Eddie probably weighed about, I don't know, 300 pounds. We didn't realize at the time he was only, when we first started sitting with us, he's only like 16 years old, but he was... He was just big. I mean, he was like, you know, he's probably about 300 pounds and about 6'2", and just a big, giant guy. But one of the sweetest, nicest guys you'll ever want to meet. Well, let me ask you a couple front row section D hypotheticals. Let's say at, I'm some, ready. Let's say at some point, let's say for this exercise, early 1988. Okay. Dusty had turned heel. How would you have reacted? We'd still blow the fucking shit out of him. Because he would, he, because there's some guys you can't help. I mean, sorry. <laughs> I, no, I, I couldn't. I, there's certain guys, I mean, you know, there's certain guys you just can't cheer for. I mean, when he sticks the cops on you, that pretty much sealed it. No, we couldn't, we couldn't, you know, we, we did churn a little bit, but we turned once, uh, Chris Champion once. He was in a terrible car wreck. And remember the, remember the new breed? Of course. I thought those, I thought those guys had tremendous talent, uh, tremendous ability. And, and and Ole hated them, and and they, Dusty didn't like them, and they ended up kind of running them out. But he was in a car wreck, and he came back with a cast on his arm, and we started chanting, "Welcome back, Chris! Welcome back, Chris!" And when we did that, they were they were wrestling um uh, the Barbarian and the and the T. Joe Khan, and T. Joe Khan suddenly just turns around, and he goes, "What? What? What? You're cheering for a good guy? What?" And I went, cool out, T.J. We're just trying to help the guy. I mean, come on. We're trying to give him a push. You know, you know come on. He just gave me a car wreck. At least we can do it. You know, come on. Give me a break. So, no, Dusty was just – he was the he was the guy that uh, – he was the guy that was the booker. So we had to give it to him. That's just the way it was. Here's another hypothetical. Same mm-hmm. time period, early 88. Okay. Flair turns face and feuds with Arn. What do you do? We'd have to cheer for Arn. No doubt about that. But, you know, Fla- see, Flair's one of those guys, though, that – Flair was so good for so long and, you know, I mean, so multi-talented on every level. You know, I mean, charisma, interview, personality, uh, talent, drive, the condition the guy was in. You know, I, I once talked to Flair and he said, and this was probably in the 90s, and he said he was doing Stairmaster six days a week, three hours a day. You know what I mean? I mean, the guy's a, mach- the guy's a machine. He's a cardiovascular machine. And I saw every match the guy did pretty much in Greensboro. I mean, I remember his first match on television when he was tagging with Rip Hawk. I mean, as soon as he showed up, it was just like, bang, who is this guy? You know, I mean, who is this guy? There's nobody like him. But Flair, Flair's one of those guys that earned his stripes. And, and, and you would, you know, you would stick with him no matter what. If he was a heel or a bad guy, you'd stick with Flair because, you know, Flair was the institution, you know. I mean, Flair's, a, Flair's the legend. And you know, but Arn. You know, we did go to Asheville up in the mountains and saw Flair versus Arn in in one of those matches. You know, the one where Pillman interfered to let Arn win the win the match. Yeah, we went to that match and uh, and and you know what? We 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 cheered for Arn. Um, we were sitting pretty good seats in the end zone. wasn't a very big event. wasn't big a big you know place. But you know, we cheered for Arn. I mean, Arn's the one guy we would cheer no matter what because Arn was like our hero. So I'm not saying man crush. I'm just saying that Arn was the man and we loved Arn. Because Arn, Arn, when he first came in, and he's tagging with Ole, Ole would do an interview, and then Arn would have, what, 30 seconds? And he would steal the interview in 30 seconds every damn time. And we'd just fall out laughing going, oh, my God, this guy's so quick, and he's so smart, and he's got bucket loads of charisma, and he brings it in the ring every night. I mean, the great guys, the ones that we still talk about, are guys that, did you get your money's worth? And then some, every time we saw them. You know, they earn the respect. 
So if Dusty Rhodes turned babyface and he weighed 600 pounds, we couldn't cheer for him. Now, if he dropped down to about 240, 250, well, Dusty, right, 260, we might, we might have actually decided to mess with him one night. <laughs> that would have been about it. There he is, John Hitchcock and Front Row Section D. You'll be hearing more from John in the coming weeks. We have some really cool segments I think everyone will get a kick out of. But from there, we're going to move on to another friend of the show. Wrestling historian Tom Burke returns to the show today. And Tom's going to talk about a few different things, including some recent information he received about Chris Colt, which I think a lot of people will find interesting, as well as some of his own personal Dr. Mike Leno stories. And I wanted to really talk to Tom about something that came up on the show a few weeks back. The wrestling magazines in the 70s. Tom, of course, was part of the Rings Wrestling Magazine, and we talked about when that switched ownership, what exactly was happening. We're going to get Tom's perspective on that, as well as his thoughts about the general magazine scene back then. Let's now go to this conversation with friend of the show, wrestling historian Tom Burke. I am happy to welcome back to the program wrestling historian Tom Burke, the man behind the Global Wrestling News Service, and he is here on the line right now. Tom, welcome back to the program. Thank you very much, Brian, and a happy new year, and happy new year to all the listeners of Super Podcast 605. Well, happy new year to you, too, and it's great to have you back on the air. And one of the things, uh, you know, we were talking briefly about it off-air that so many people reacted to during your previous times on the show was you're talking about Chris Colt because you had a personal relationship right. with Chris Colt. You knew him before he was in the wrestling business, and we've talked all about that in the past. And you were saying that you recently got in touch with someone in his family. Yes, I, uh, she reached out to me. Uh, his niece reached out to me, and we've had a, a number of conversations, and she has been um, very helpful in filling out uh, some voids as well as correcting a lot of the rumors that have spread around about Chris's passing. Before I go into that part, uh, I, 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 was, I want to reflect on my, my last conversation with him was probably about six months before he passed away. And in that time, he said to me something which has always been in the back of my mind. He was seeing a psychologist or a psychiatrist, either one, and he said that, the doctor was so intrigued with his life that they were working on it as biography together. Now, the niece told me that there is a notebook with all kinds of memories in that notebook. Oh wow! And this might have been this might have been from the doctor's point of view, or um, you know, or from probably from Chris. But the situation is that it's there and everything, and hopefully. I will have access to it at some point in time. But going back to my conversation with him, and again, this is about six or seven months before his passing, he said to me, which I thought was very intriguing, uh, he wrote me a letter and gave me his new phone number, and I called him up, and I said, how you doing, Chris? And he said to me, Chris Coe is dead. I am now back to being Chuck Harris. And I said, to myself, geez, that's, that, that's kind of interesting, sad and interesting at the same time. Because he was talking to a peer, who is at that point 50 years old this, uh, since we had, we were both born in 46 and he did not die of AIDS as a lot of people suspected. Sad to say he was in a situation where he had a lapse and he overdosed. Uh, he passed away in his apartment 
in Seattle, Washington. He was there for three days till someone found him. He had been living alone. He was, um, you know, in, in that situation where he had been straight in the sense he was off drugs. When I spoke to him uh, months before, he told me that he had been off drugs and Robert was straight and sad to say he had a lapse and ended up doing uh, doing whatever and he passed away, sad to say. But I have uh, a situation that I was really, I was, I was very hurtful when I heard that from her. Because as I said, I knew he had passed away. And, you know, all the rumors were that he had AIDS and all this. And he did not, even though he was under um, medication for, for that um, uh, virus. For HIV. But it was not HIV, exactly. Yes, he wasn't, he wasn't, uh, that did not do him in, the, the drugs did him in, sad to say. And, you know, and I, and I reflect on a lot of this stuff. And I remember back in the 70s, probably about 76, 77, when I was traveling with Ron Dupree and Chris in Mobile, Alabama. And Ron Dupree said something to me. And it said, I, I have known him for 11 years, and I don't know him. And I, I thought that was, you know, this is his former partner. And now they're in a platonic relationship. But. I, I just I thought that was that was unbelievable. I mean, you know, I mean, uh, you know that they've been uh, he's been together for so many many years, working together as tag team partners, even as opponents and everything, and as a couple. And he said that I just I've known for eleven years, but I really don't know him. Uh, he, he's so complex, and I think that sums up a lot of things with Chris, with a lot of people and everything, but. So I want to set this record straight. So I hope that will end up putting the putting to bed all the rumors that have been circulating about him for what the last two decades about. You know, I have to imagine that it's somewhat weird for you because to the great benefit of anyone interested in wrestling history, you put on Facebook regularly your correspondences to different people, Luthez and of course yeah. Chris Colt. So you get to see that you had regular correspondence with him for so many years. Again, you knew him before he was in the wrestling industry. So what's it like for you when you know, for the most part, I mean, you have no certainty until you know, but you know he has passed away, but you have no information about your friend. You don't know for 20 years, over 20 years. What happened? Exactly. Yeah, that's it. Uh, you know, um, it, was, it was shocking in a way, and in another way it wasn't shocking. Because I remember in a conversation I had with him years ago, he said to me, I'll never live past 40. Well, he went another 10 years. But, you know, his lifestyle was up and down. And, you know, it's a sad fate for someone who was so talented in wrestling and basically a good guy. You know, regardless of everything else about him, you know, which some people would look down on. I don't, you know, you, you have to look beyond that. You know, I looked at him as a person and he was okay in my book. You know, I would have no problem whatsoever with him in any form whatsoever. But I think that getting back to your question, yes, it, it, it was a void, you know, and my, you know, at Christ, we were at the same age. He would, he'd be 71 today as I am. And, you know, you look at it and, you know, Christ, you know, um, uh, we both grew up in the post-World War II era, you know, baby boomers. We both had this infatuation with professional wrestling, and that was a common denominator. I wish 
the thing most that my correspondence with him when we were kids had been destroyed by uh, by a, um, a burst pipe. And uh, I lost that course. I had a box full of correspondence and newsletters, et cetera, and all that got washed away, sad to say, or damaged. So, but ever since then, I, uh, I kept the stuff in a higher storage area. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah. I, I, and I, you know, I got other stuff. I got some more letters I'm going to post. And one letter that I distinctly remember from him was just before I went in the army. And he wrote about that. And I, I, his comments, you know, forgotten country or something like that. You know, I mean, I thought it was kind of kind of unique. I have to dig that letter out and post it on on my Facebook page. How would you describe, in general, your correspondence with him? When you look back now and you look at those letters that you received from him, what do you see? Do you see anything differently today than you would have thirty years ago? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, that's absolutely. Uh, uh, the, the long years of friendship. My, 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 the last one that I posted on my Facebook page was in thanking me for always being with him in regards to his professional career, you know, giving him all as much publicity as I could in various magazines that I worked for. And, you know, um, I think that in itself uh, reflects his genuine friendship with me. Not, not just as a as a colleague from one wrestler from a wrestling angle and as a performer myself as a writer, but also a deep affection and friendship, you know, which I which I cherish. Well, you actually cared, and I'm sure he didn't run into too many people I, I, in the wrestling I, business that cared. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you know, and I, I think what it is too is because of our age ages. We were the same age. Some people don't understand that, but you know, uh, he was he was a peer, you know, and. Maybe because my growing up and having a, a, a network of friends who were all into wrestling, and then all of a sudden, boom, they're, they're no longer interested. And my network of correspondence that I had throughout the mid-60s and everything, you know, and Chris being one of them, I think it, it generated this uh, unity that we had. You know, and it, it's something which maybe some of the younger people out there who listen to 605 don't understand the power of correspondence, of actually sitting down and writing a letter, whereas you get on now Twitter and tweaks and emails and all that, you know. But sitting down to write a letter, put your thoughts on that paper, put it in an envelope, go to the post office and mail out, and you get it in two or three days or whatever. That has a lot more feeling to me than to just get on the net and boom, boom, boom on Twitter or Facebook or whatever. That's my opinion. I'm old school, I guess. But Yeah, no, you know. but from what I've seen yeah. and from what I've heard from people I've spoken to, when you look back at you and Chris Colt in the early 60s as pen pals, and then you look and you see Dean Silverstone and George Shire and Jeff Walton and, you know, the list goes on and on and on. All of these people yeah. that connected Back then, over 50 years ago, and to this day, are still friends, still talk to each other, may not talk oh, yeah. as much I, about you know current wrestling, but they still, those relationships are all still there. Yeah, and you know, you know getting getting back to, to the person you just mentioned, Jeff Walton, you had him on, on as a guest uh, oh, about uh, maybe over a year ago or so, and he had a, it was just, it was just fantastic with his interview. I thoroughly enjoyed it. No uh, firm announcement, but I, I think you'll be hearing him back on the show pretty soon. I would hope so. 
He's a great guy. <laughs> Again, he's another peer. They were the same age, you know? <laughs> you know, and I, 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 I tell you, this is funny. Mickey Doyle and I and Dr. Jerry Graham and Jeff Jaffe were all in the same age range, maybe a, a year or so apart. We were all in the Army together. And I, I joked with them. I said, imagine if we had all been stationed together at the same time, the same place. What a time we would have had. <laughs> they would have been, they, they, they'd be a wrestling champion. I'd be their manager, you know? <laughs> but, you know, but, you know, it, it's crazy, you know? It's crazy. You think about it. You bring up Jerry Graham Jr. Let me ask you a hypothetical that just popped into my head. How do you think Chris Colt would have gotten along with your very good friend, Dr. Jerry Graham? Oh, they got along great together because they traveled together. Oh, I didn't oh yeah, that. absolutely. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Matt, Chris was telling me a story. They had been wrestling for the, for the Sheik. They were in Cincinnati or someplace when uh, Les Ruffin was uh, the, um, you know, the promoter there. But it was the Sheik's territory. And they're heading home. They got their payoff. It was, it was a very good house. Doc was drunk, opens the car window, and throws off. They had a stoplight or something. He, threw, he puts down the window, and all these kids are standing there by the streetlight, and he throws his payoff to them. <laughs> it's like about 300 bucks. <laughs> <laughs> so these kids are standing there. This car pulls up. Yeah. Dr. Jerry Graham opens up the window, throws up, and then throws his money at them? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so the, in this story, Chris Colt is the, the normal participant. He's the straight man. In this case, Chris was the normal one, right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, well, you know, you cleared up a lot mm. today about the passing of Chris Colt, and it's something that so many people have talked about or rumored about for so many years, but are there a lot of stories, a lot of lies that you hear about Chris Colt? Yes, there are a lot of lies. And the king of the liars himself told me a, told me a Chris Colt lie, and uh, that is the uh, what, what, what will we call him the the, the doctor of deceit, uh, Mr. Leno, <laughs> Doctor Mike Leno. Yes, <laughs> yeah. He said to me at a CAC one year that uh, he had visited Chris Colt three days before he died when he was in hospice care in San Francisco. Well, he was in Seattle. He wasn't in hospice care. <laughs> wait, wait a minute. That's a pretty outlandish lie. He told you he visited the guy in hospice. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's pretty despicable of <laughs> all the things to make up. Well, what can you expect? What can you expect? The guy who was the guy who was basically removed from the board of directors of the CAC by uh, Luthez. Luthez was the person who actually removed him. Told him that I want him off the board. <laughs> what did he do? Well, you could argue, you could argue with Fez. <laughs> no, you're not going to argue with Luthez, no. <laughs> you know, so uh, what's, it comes to a, sto a story I have to share with you about Luthez and Elano. I'm again at CAC. Yeah. I'm, I go up to Lou. I'm shaking Lou's hand, and everyone, we're talking, and, you know, blah, blah, blah. Elano comes up, extends his hand to Fez. Fez takes it, Fez is looking at me, and he just does a Danny Hodge grip, and Reynolds <laughs> on his knees. And, and Fez has just got this biggest grin on his face, you know, and like, totally ignoring Reynolds. 
but I, I still think of that often, you know. And you know, he's a he was a character. I mean, you know, uh, the doctor of deceit. What can I tell you? You know, I want to talk to you about something else today, Tom. And your name actually recently came up on the show. I had uh, recently got some old copies of the Ring Wrestling, and I was going through them. Oh uh, yes. And I noticed the changeover when it went from you were, I think, were the correct me if I'm wrong, the associate editor, and then Norm Keitzer took over and it became a different crew. And I know you were involved in the magazines for so many years, but can we talk a little bit about this? When did you first get involved with the ring wrestling? And let's talk a little bit about the history there. Well, my history of ring wrestling goes back to the time I I, I met, I knew Chris Cole. I was like 16. And in the back of the magazine, there were um, what we call aga columns, correspondence columns. And I was doing a, a, a column called like the wrestling beat. And I would end up giving information and uh, some local wrestling news from my area, Massachusetts, but other things. Because I would, uh, what I would do is, on the way home from school, I, uh, the Central Library was right near my school. I would, I would stop off there almost every day, and we had a wide selection of out-of-town newspapers. And I would uh, read them and make no wrestling notes, of course, you know. And I would use that for my newsletter, and I'd also use it for this column that I was doing. So that, that I was like 16 maybe at the time. And then when I came out of the Army in 69, I ended up working in New York City in 1970. And I stopped off at the Ring Magazine office and introduced myself to uh, Nat Bay, who was the editor and publisher at the time. And uh, we were talking, and they asked me if I could come in the office and work in the office uh, for a couple of, a couple hours a week. And I said, sure, because I used to work midnight to eight at the Port Authority bus terminal. So I I would go down to, after I'd finished my shift at eight o'clock, a couple of times a week. I would go down to the ring office and file file letters and file pictures and you know answer correspondence. And I started doing a lot more articles. And I did that till the magazine was basically transferred when Nat sold it to the Busher and um, uh, the Consortium of Guys Businessmen. Yeah. And when I walked in the office, Bert Sugar was there, who I had met previously, and he says to me, and I remember the exact quote, you don't have to come in any longer. I'm shipping all this wrestling shit to Norman Kaiser. Well, that's exact the way words. he put it. Wow. Yeah. Now, this is a guy wow. who he, he hated wrestling until, of course, the boom took place, so-called, in 1984 when he hooked up with uh, George Apolitano and they did a series of books, you know? So this guy here, to me, was just a bum. There's no way I can describe it. A leech. So, uh, and then, of course, Norman Kaiser took it over, and I continued to work for uh, Norman Kaiser under what was the name pro wrestling enterprises and uh that continued until they finally folded then out of the clear blue sky in 1985 or 86 i got a phone call from um nat lubay who said he's resurrecting um ring wrestling so i went down to new york and uh teamed up with him and i did one issue we're going to do another issue, and uh, for some reason or other, uh, it never came about. So the last issue of Ring Wrestling Magazine, I was I was the official editor, and that's the one with Kevin Von Erich on the cover. 
and I had issues with the graphics department. They did not put the magazine together as I thought they should have, as well as I, I had some um, issues with one of the other office guys there. But say la vie. That, that's how it goes. I don't even think I've ever seen that issue, the, the last issue where he brought it back. I'll, um, I'll, I'll, matter of fact, what I'll do is I'll scan it for you. Matter of fact, uh, Ed Gurria did a great article in it for the issue called What's in a Name or My Name Is or something. Like that, and just just reviewed like aliases in wrestling and everything. So it, it was kind of interesting because I was trying to bring back the history of the sport. What in general was the relationship between the different magazines? You have uh, Nate Lubay, you have Sahadi, Lou Shahadi, Lou Shahadi, uh, you had Lou Eskin. I used to work for Lou Eskin, and I, I, I never worked for Lou Shahadi, but uh, I'll tell you about Lou Shahadi. Well, let's just, so the listeners know, Lou Shahadi was Wrestling World Magazine. Wrestling World Magazine, yes. And Lou Eskin. Uh, Lou Eskin was Wrestling Review Magazine, and then Official Wrestling and a couple other titles he worked under. But Lou Shahadi, if you ever look at any of the issues of Wrestling World, from the, specifically from the 70s, you would see a big coverage of Detroit with the Sheik, Fred Curry, Pampero, Furpo, all the guys of that nature. And I remember one time I was at the Garden at MSG in the back because I was working for Ring Wrestling Magazine at the time. And Shahadi was there, and Fred Curry comes out, and he gives him a big hug and blah, blah, blah. And I don't know, okay, whatever. So... Years later, and I'm talking 30-odd years later, I'm having coffee with Fred Curry because we meet almost once a week. And I mentioned it to him. And Fred says, oh, he's in the tribe. What do you mean he's in the tribe? He's, he's Lebanese. You know, they're, you know, ethnically, Lebanese, Syrians, all that group from the Middle East, uh, from Middle East they linger together. Uh, same thing with Furpa. Furpa was uh, half Armenian. You know, so there, there's an, uh, an association there. Good or bad, good or bad, but you know, so I, I thought that was kind of interesting. That's why you saw the chic on the cover of the magazines a lot. Now, for Lueskin, uh, Lueskin was his office was on 42nd Street between 8th and 9th Avenue, and uh, I used to go there and uh, get a few other articles from him under another name, though, because I was working for Nat. So, but it was, um, and then of course you got Stanley Weston. Who had the uh, and actually the, and Stanley yeah. Weston? I mean, interesting enough, you just named two guys who have their offices in Manhattan. Stanley Weston's in Rockville Center at home. Exactly. In fact, John Arezzi was uh, worked in the office for Weston at one point, and he also worked at the Ring Wrestling office, uh, Ring Magazine office, for a little while too. Uh, but and he said uh, he said it was it was different from working at the Ring office. And working for the Western, it was different, different atmosphere and everything. And maybe they didn't think it was real. I don't know. So, anyways, um, but uh, I I only met Weston once, and that was at the Cauliflower Alley Club. I I never uh, was interested in being part of that uh, publication or their, you know, it's all fabrication to me. I mean, the greatest photographs in the world, but the, the text was. Less than interesting, let's put it that way. When you want to, when C.J. Strongville wants to wrestle Jimmy Valiant on top of the Empire State Building to see gets thrown off, you know, well, who cares? <laughs> you know? What was your favorite? I mean, but, you know, beyond the fact that you worked for 
ring wrestling. Did you have a favorite magazine to read? Well, it was ring wrestling and wrestling review. Let me let me backtrack for a minute. Probably wrestling review when I was a when I was a teenager, because sometimes ring wrestling got into the obscure history or things that I really wasn't that interested in and everything. And, you know, I, I remember there was, there was a freaking movie that came out. I can't, oh, uh, a James Bond movie. And uh, there was a wrestling site. And they, they did a whole freaking, like, four-page spread on it. Well, a bunch of crap, you know? <laughs> uh, but, uh, yeah, I just, I just kind of figured that out. But the overall, the ring wrestling was very good historically and factual. So was in wrestling review. Wrestling review has some very good writers, and the layouts were were fairly good. Again, going back to West, and Weston had the best layouts in photography, but it's just a text just didn't do anything. But uh, but yeah, review was one probably one of my favorite magazines when I was a kid, and it was monthly too, whereas Ring Wrestling was every uh, quarterly. Do you remember the first time you saw a Japanese wrestling magazine? Yeah, I would have. It would have been probably 1967 when I was in England. I was uh, on a leave from the Army. I had taken a month off and traveled to England. And I was staying with Ron Farrar and his wife and family, his wife Marge, who became a girl wrestler, Sue Britton. And Ron was a big collector, and he had some uh, Japanese magazines. And he also had some Japanese posters, I remember. So that was the first, that was in 67. Oh, very cool. What'd you think when you saw those? I mean, I don't know how they were in 67, but just a few years later, you had color and glossy. And... Yeah, right. As I recall, it was a pulp magazine with maybe two pages of color or something like that, you know, not, not a lot, but not like, you know, well, years later in the seventies, you know, they were, they, they splashed uh, the color pictures like, you know, six, eight pages, sometimes 12 pages, you know? And it, was, it wasn't that thick either. Maybe 46 pages, something like that, and maybe four pages of color. Just a few years later, it would really change with Gong Magazine. Oh, yeah, Gong, like 100 pages, you know? What was it like for you to see wrestling in England for the first time? Oh, I loved it. That was the reason I, well, the reason I went for two reasons. Number one, wrestling, of course, but also the fact was the, la- the, uh, the language. Even though I did learn something, and I hope this does not, um, this won't be politically correct. I'm sure it'll be but okay. I got lost. I got lost trying to find where I was going on, on, on the subway, or, uh, or they call the tube there. And I went up to an Asian person, and they had such a heavy accent, I couldn't understand a word they said. And they were speaking English. So a woman saw, this little lady saw that I was totally perplexed. So she comes up to me and she asked me, where are you going, blah, blah, blah. And I told her and she put, she got me on the right, the right uh, train and everything. But uh, getting back, I, I wanted to go to England for the wrestling and everything. And uh, it was, I met Tony Rocco, who wrestled in L.A. years later. Yeah. On that, yeah. Always 10. Yeah, yeah, and I also <laughs> met Judo Al Hayes. It was Judo Al Hayes then was on the card, and uh, let's see, and Billy Robinson. I met Billy Robinson in Bradford, 
England in 1967. Wow, that's amazing. And then I, then I mean, <laughs> that's yeah, amazing. Yeah. That's so cool. It's like that's like Forrest Gump material, Tom. You realize that, right? That's yeah, like Forrest yeah. Gump material. Yeah, I know that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Then, I, then I met him again in 1968 in Cologne, Germany. And uh, when he was inducted into the Pro Wrestling Hall of Fame in Amsterdam, New York at that point, and don't ask me the years because now a senior moment is popping in, we sat there and talked about his match with Gideon Guido, who was a Hungarian wrestler in Cologne, Germany. And he said it was one of his, the best matches he ever had. It was give and take the whole time. He was, he's a, he was like uh, Robinson, a shooter. But it was good. Uh, you know, it, um, I, 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 you know that. And then I also met the Zebra Kid in, in uh, Cologne, Germany as well. George Bolas? And I, George Bolas, yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. He was, okay, he, wow. Yeah, he, he, was, he was on that show. On that, show. that was promoted by uh, Gerhard Schaefer. And um, correct me, I'm, I'm sorry. That was done by Gustav Kaiser. Gerhard Schaefer was the longtime correspondent for a lot of the magazines That's and right. a writer. <laughs> yeah. And I, he, he's the one that put me in touch with uh, Gustav Kaiser. And he gave, and I had press credentials and everything. He brought me in a dressing room. I got to meet the guys and everything. It was cool. And you know, George uh, Bowles was very nice because he. Uh, meeting an American soldier at the time, and um, we uh, we talked about wrestling. I wish I had known at that point of time of his background with Jack Pfeffer, because he worked for Jack Pfeffer back in the early 50s. Yeah. And uh, that, that's something which I was unaware of at the time. Anyway, going back to England. Joint promotion was a big promotion, and uh, I there was another promoter, Lou Phillips, who um, ran in Birmingham. He was opposition. And I went to his shows. Uh, I went to two of his shows. And I also, and I met Brian Dixon, who became a, a premier wrestling promoter in uh, England, who ran All-Star Wrestling in Liverpool. And he ended up, again, and he was a peer situation. He was the same age. And, uh, he's, he's still around. I mean, I haven't been in contact with him in several years, but he, when Chris Colt had his departure from joint promotions in England, he worked for Brian Dixon. So it's like I kind of tied in again and everything. When you went there, I don't think Big Daddy was a thing yet, but no, no. Later on, obviously, yeah. he was a big thing there. So I'm curious what you were hearing from your correspondents in England at the height of Big Daddy. What did they think of him? Most of the people that I would deal with in England as correspondents were the purists, let's put it that way. And Big Daddy was far from that. And even though as an attraction, he became a marketing icon, uh, which is interesting. I never saw him. I, w I went back to England in 1991, and um, I traveled around, went to a few shows. That's where I met Steve Regal. And uh, through the Mongolian Mauler, Peter Miller introduced me to him. And uh, I met uh, Tony St. Clair, Marty Jones, Johnny Saint, and everything. And, and again, this was again through this again going back, this is going back to Brian Dixon, who at this point, his joint promotions was finished. He was the main promoter in England. So when I, I walked into the, the venue, he spotted me right away and, you know, brought me in and introduced me to the boys. And that was it. So that, that was interesting. 
I really enjoyed it. What did you observe going there at that time in 91, which is a few years after they lost TV, which really was a, a, it changed British wrestling and the WWF was over there in full force. What was it like going to a British wrestling show at that time? Well, compared to my previous experiences in 67, and then I went back in 69, it was a, um, you, you could tell that the enthusiasm for the emphasis on the, on the size of the crowd was down, you know, and I even, I even heard some chants for, you know, Hogan or whatever it was. So it was, it was a different atmosphere. And, and then some of the wrestlers have changed too, you know, their look. They became more um, uh, westernized, shall we say, or WWFized or whatever. So it was, it was a little different. You know, they're trying to imitate rather, rather than try to be uh, your, own, your, your own person. There we go. Another great segment with friend of the show, Tom Burke. You'll be hearing him on the show again pretty soon. But with that, Jerry, I think it's time for Book of the Week. All right. <laughs> I've got a lot of them, brother. Which book is it? Well, this week's Book of the Week is Crazy Like a Fox, The Definitive Chronicle of Brian Pillman, 20 Years Later by Liam O'Rourke, a very wordy title of a book here but i have not finished i've not finished reading this book yet usually i do not make a book book of the week until i finish reading it but i've had a very interesting time just this book has been near my bed and usually before i go to bed i'll pick it up and just flip through it and i can never put it down it really from the limited amount i've had a chance to read it it does a great job of using the story of Brian Pillman to almost tell the entire story about what was happening in wcw and the wwf at that time really in-depth. There's a lot of information, too, that I'd never heard before. There's a lot of little stories in this Pillman book that you've heard, like, little things about, and it finally fills in the salacious details. There was always a story going around that Mark Madden told that Brian Pillman was sleeping with one of the divas, and he called them on the phone in the middle of it. I never heard it was sunny until this book. This book has a lot of really interesting information, a lot of interesting dirt. It's really well-sourced. That's one of the things. You look at the people who were interviewed for this book, I know who a lot of them are. They knew their stuff. So he went to the right sources. I look forward to really profiling this book again when I finish reading the whole thing. But I feel comfortable enough now to recommend it to everyone. Book of the Week, Crazy Like a Fox, The Definitive Chronicle, a Brian Pillman, 20 Years Later by Liam O'Rourke. Of course, you can get that by going to tinyurl.com slash superpod Amazon. That is our link, our Amazon.com referral link. By using that link, you don't pay any more than you would normally pay for any purchase. You make it Amazon.com. It's just that we get a little bit of love and support here at the Super Podcast. We're not one of these shows that try to jam as many ads in there. This show is not a whore. This is the show with integrity. We don't want to jam it with ads. We want you to have a pleasurable experience, and we go out of our way to make sure we do that here on the show each and every week. So if you appreciate that, it costs you nothing. Tinyurl.com slash superpod Amazon. Valentine's Day is coming up. A lot of you guys got to make sure you're not going to be getting a lot of shit for forgetting about it. Get your chocolates, your cards, your gifts, whatever it may be. Tinyurl.com slash superpod Amazon. Lots of other shows have links. Jerry, lots of other shows try to get people to support them and say, hey, use our links. But you really have to ask yourself, are they in it for you or are they in it for themselves? 
Fuck those other guys. Well, you, we're not there I'm yet, sorry. but <laughs> feel free to jump in enthusiastically in a moment. But you really have to ask yourself, which show gives me the most content with the least amount of ads, and it's the best content? And I think the answer will be rather clear. When it comes down to it, when it comes down to them or us, fuck those guys. Fuck those guys. Support the Super Podcast. Support your Super That's Podcast. Right. And with that, Jerry, we're going to talk now with a friend of the show and a member of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network, the Tennessee stud himself, Ron Fuller. You got to work for Ron, didn't you? Yeah, it was uh, 1982, I believe, whatever year it was when Bob Armstrong turned heel, they brought me in. and uh, That was a pretty hot period of time. Oh, yeah, geez. I mean, uh, they brought me in from Tampa under the hood as the destroyer. And they had me stand on a big wooden box behind uh, Gordon Soli's podium there. And J.J. Dillon was my manager. They did, they did a promo for me coming into, you know, Alabama and Pensacola and all that. And uh, so I looked like I was like six foot nine. And then uh, <laughs> the kid, they said I was coming to get Ron Fuller. And then because uh, Bob Armstrong just turned heel and he was acting like his arm was broke. And he was bringing me as the bounty hunter. <laughs> and then uh so i worked i worked Ron, and then i mean there was and bob armstrong would always hit the ring of course and not have a broken arm and start nailing him and we'd get so much heat it'd be the whole crowd was coming after us on mobile i remember we had to run into the restroom cops were everywhere and locked the doors and all this it was wild <laughs> well bob had been loved there for years so I what, know. what yeah, was yeah. it like how were the i mean when you say the heat was oh. was that heavy they were ready to kill bob armstrong yeah, it was like Cornet and Mid South. I mean, same same type of heat. Yeah, I remember because I I accidentally too walked to the uh, venue in Birmingham because the hotel was so close with my mask on just to draw you know attention. <laughs> and then when I left, I wasn't thinking all the heat was going to happen, so I had to leave like that too. And then I just kind of yelled real loud, like kind of like Marky Lewin used to yell, you know that I don't want to do it and break your eardrums, but <laughs> you should yell, you know. <laughs> but, Yeesh. Yeah, that I did that kind of a few times with that weird mask. I had a mask that looked kind of like Gene Simmons' face, that weird-looking shit, and then uh, they kind of ran away then a little bit. <laughs> Leave me alone. All the uh, fans that were mad at us, they decided this guy is weird-looking. But anyway, yeah, it was horrible. I mean, the heat, I couldn't believe. It was one of the most I ever seen besides Cornette. They tried to make you look six foot nine. Ron Fuller was yeah. six foot nine. So yeah. what was that match he was like? Six foot nine. Yeah. Oh yeah, he laid punches in for. I know that. It was he laid when he hit you on the those punches he did. You know where he kind of hit you on the side of the neck. I remember they were snug, <laughs> but he was good. Everything was good. I didn't mind. And then uh, I like being stiff. I was used to it from uh, all the stuff that Eddie Graham did to my initiations with Haku and everything. <laughs> good pay in Southeastern? Oh, yeah, real good. I still had the check stub. It was like, um, I mean, for back then, this is, you're talking 1982, so that many years ago, it was like at least 700 a week. I mean, that's pretty good. For back then, that was good. It was short trips, too, and everything, so. Yeah, and then I ended up going to, that's right before I went to Charlotte, though, instead. So I was either going to go there or Charlotte. And then I came to Charlotte, and I thought, I, I mean, uh, my first show was in Savannah, like I said. And I thought I was going to be the destroyer up there. That's what Dusty told me. And then when I got there, Dory Funk was the booker, and he said, no, what do you got a mask for? You're going to be Golden Boy Gray. And I was like, oh, good, I'd rather be that anyway. 
And then uh, that was funny. I'm sitting there with a mask, and Terry Funk's like, God, "That's the funniest thing." I had spikes and all kinds of stuff, like uh, kind of like the war- Road Warriors did before they ever did it. I had like uh, a vest with spikes on it, and armbands with spikes. I even made Kevin Sullivan his first uh, spikes he wore when he was the doing the gimmick in a, oh wow the evil gimmick in florida yeah yeah i made him for him the first one yeah and yep he asked me he seen my outfit and i had like spikes everywhere and he was like can i wear that and i was like i was kind of looked like what the hell and he goes no it's yours go ahead and then he was assistant booker i didn't want to say no and then, and then dusty wanted to wear my big cape i had to be the midnight rider i was like jesus they're taking all my and Fonzie was like man these guys are the bookers you better give them give me your outfit I was like, nah, fuck, I don't want to. Anyway, they just let me go ahead and not not use their stuff. I mean, my stuff they didn't use. So, so what happened was I told them I just said I'll make you a pair like I have. I had them made like uh, spikes for his wrists, you know, the ones he wore at first. And then, uh, so what happened? I went to Charlotte and I had all that crap on. You know, I got there early to Savannah, Georgia, and Terry Funk was there, and he was walked in the dressing room. I didn't know him real good at that time, and he goes, "What the hell are you doing?" He was ripping the hell out of me. He was like. Dory was like he always was, but uh, Terry was like, what the hell are you doing with all that stuff on? You're not going to hurt nobody, are you? On these fucking spikes. And he goes, <laughs> who'd you work for down there? Dusty Road? He's an asshole, isn't he? And I was like, I'm not going to say it on the bat. I think they <laughs> like each other. What the hell? I said, nah, I don't know. And he goes, he's a fucking asshole. Admit it. Come on, man. Come on. Jesus, Dusty's an asshole. I said, uh, I don't know. He goes, what are you doing with all that stuff? And then, uh, <laughs> He started ribbing me, and then, I mean, they said, okay, are you taking steroids? Yeah, you look like you've been taking steroids. And I said, no, I'm not. And then Dory said, take that stuff off. You're going to be golden boy gray here. And I was like, oh, Jesus. So I had a beard and everything, still scruffy beard. He goes, go back to the hotel and shave, too, because <laughs> you're working giant Baba. And uh, Baba was there taping it for all Japan that night. And they said, he said, you're working, you and Jake are working Baba and... Tenor, I think it was. Yeah, I got the tape somewhere, and I was like, "Oh my god!" So I got paid by them, two hundred dollars, and then Crockett, two hundred dollars. That was hell of a payoff for back in those days. I mean, thirty some years, thirty five years ago, or whatever it was, four hundred dollars for one night. I was like, "This is gonna be good up here, <laughs> working seven days a week." Anyway, that's what happened with uh with that. Yeah, pretty funny stuff there. Yeah. Of course, in the coming weeks on the show, Jerry, we'll definitely talk a little bit more about your time in Mid-Atlantic. I know you were at Starcade 83. Oh, yeah. We don't have time right now to talk about it, but maybe next time on the show we'll talk about no. Starcade 83. And, of course, you were also on the big show that Don Owen did, the 60th anniversary show in 85, where Roddy Piper, even though he's working for the World yeah. Wrestling Federation, showed up. So I want to talk all about that. But yep. let's now go to this conversation I had with the Tennessee stud Ron Fuller. We talked about something that came up on the show a few weeks back. The production of wrestling shows, when Ron took over Southeastern, how he changed the television production, really revolutionized wrestling programming in so many ways. And of course, the second change, when Southeastern would become continental wrestling. A few weeks back on the show, we talked about the story, the rumor, that one of the reasons for the upgrade in production was because Ron was up for the ESPN wrestling gig that went to the AWA. We'll talk to him about that. We'll hear what he has to say about that and so much more. Let's go to our friend, the host of the Studcast, the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller. I am very happy to welcome back today to the Super Podcast, professional wrestling's greatest storyteller, the host of the Studcast, none other than the Tennessee stud himself, Mr. Ron Fuller. Ron, welcome back to the program. Oh, thank you very much. It's my pleasure, Brian. It's always a pleasure being on your program. 
You are one of the very best. And uh, I look forward to whatever questions you have for me. So I'm ready to go whenever you are. Yeah, you know, I, I briefly said to you off air that I've become fascinated with the history of television production and professional wrestling, the advances that were made in different places at different times, and really how the business ended up where it is today, where Vince McMahon, if you look at his production, it's kind of like he took the NBC sports formula and modified it and grew from there. But it was a long road to get to there, and you were a part of several big revolutions in wrestling production, so that's what I want to talk about today, and if we could take a step back from that first, I know on the Studcast you talk so much about the wrestling you saw growing up, going with your father from territory to territory as he built those territories, but what were the things you saw early on in television shows that you thought, oh, that's really good, that's a good way of doing it? And what did you see that you said, that is the worst thing. If I had a promotion, I would never do that. All right. Uh, I, I traveled a lot as a kid, and obviously my dad owned and operated uh, several different territories. It seemed like to me, back in the old days, in the, in the 50s and into the early 60s, heck, almost into the 70s maybe, I don't think there was much focus on production, uh, what they actually did with their programs. My dad always tried to have great commentators. When he went to Memphis in 1959, he hired Lance Russell. That's how Lance got his job, his first job, is my dad went to HBQ, the channel that made wrestling in Memphis, and set up that program to, to have the first 90-minute show ever. It was basically alive from 10.30 to 12 noon. A great concept, a lot of live programming back in those days. It wasn't unusual because it was live. But he recognized that his key person on his television program is his commentator. And as time goes by, that happens. You see that in wrestling everywhere. Gordon Soley is an example in Florida. I mean, he's just he, he just made that program what that program was. But the actual production content of most television stations and most territories that I was in as a younger guy, they did not focus on the production on it. They didn't, they didn't try to do anything spectacular or different. So when I started my first business at Southeastern in Knoxville, I took over that company. I went there on a trip uh, just to visit Smokies, take a vacation in the Smokies. I ended up getting a room in Knoxville, and I happened to be at a TV, sitting in the bed, watching a television program at 6 o'clock, and it was wrestling. It was their wrestling program. And you mentioned what is some of the worst. It was actually the worst wrestling program I'd ever seen. It was terrible. But I'd come from Florida. I'd been in Florida territory for four years. And I'd had that Gordon influence. And uh, and I, and they were doing some things in Florida production-wise that weren't being done in other places. They were starting to tape matches and shoot with 16 millimeter film and and be able to bring those matches back and show them in the program itself that were one i think they were one of the first to do that so i came from a pretty good production setup there that they had in florida and i was accustomed to really seeing that done properly as good as anybody was doing it in the country at the time so I go and I turn this TV on and the first thing I hear is there's a commentator there his name was Big Jim Hess they're on a U station. It doesn't have very, very big distance. It goes out maybe 30, 40 miles out of Knoxville. And so 
the first thing this guy, somebody throws a punch and he goes, there you go. Another warp your head off hole. <laughs> I mean, I was like, what did he say? You know, and then it wasn't long till he said it again and again and again. He probably said it 20 times in that program. And I got the impression from watching that one show that he wanted to be the star and rather than the wrestlers being the star. And I think, a, you know, for a great commentator to do his job properly, he's not the program. I mean, he is the program in a way, but he's relatively a small part of it when you talk about a wrestling program. And he should be in the background doing a really good job, obviously. But this guy was really poor. Within two months, I ended up owning that business there. And I let him go, but first I had to find me someone who I thought could do a much better job as a commentator. I think that was critical back in the 60s and 70s as your commentator. Uh, nobody worried much about production values. So I, I worked an arrangement with Les Thatcher. Now, Les had done some, some announcing in a couple of places, but he'd never really done a full program. He had never been the head guy. And I really like Les. We had a great relationship. Wrestled with him in Florida for a couple of years in the early 70s. And I wanted him. He's the guy I wanted. So I brought him in. About the same time, I changed channels in Knoxville. I went from this UHF station. I got on the CBS affiliate there. Went out 140 miles. Huge signal. I mean, I turned a, 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 a town, just Knoxville, I turned a town into a territory off of that television because it had such a distance that gave me a lot of opportunities. How did you get to CBS? How did you have the relationship with CBS to make that move? I walked in the door with my dad. My dad came up and visited me and I said, you know, dad, I've got a TV station here, but it's, it's not got much of a signal. It's got a horrible commentator. I need to make some adjustments. I want to do this thing with Thatcher. That was his deal. I mean, he was great at handling television and the relationships with the big people at the stations. C.P. Persons in Mobile, Alabama was really big in the, in the television business, and him and he and Dad became personal friends. So when Dad left Mobile in the 50s and went to Memphis, he called C.P. and said, C.P., can you talk to so-and-so at WHBQ and see if, if I can get moved to a better channel, better situation? Uh, same thing when we went to Arizona in 60. He called CP and said, CP, they know you, man. I, I've mentioned your name. And so he had this connection. So he called CP for me. And, and I speak to CP. I'd never met CP persons. But CP says, Ron, I'll, I'll speak to him. Yeah, I know one of those guys there. He happened to know the uh, program director. So he got that. He made the call. He got me and my father in there. And I didn't really have a product to show them. I mean, most of the time when you go in and you're trying to get on a TV, you you got to take a tape with you and they're going to want to see something. Yeah. But they knew what wrestling was there because they, you know, wrestling's been on in every station or every market, some station in every market across the country since the early 50s. So they were familiar with wrestling. But I kept trying to explain to them, I said, guys, I, I, I want to do something different. I want to have something that's not been done before. I, I've got myself a commentator. And they said, well, what are your ideas? What would you like to do? And I said, I want to do instant replays. Now, this is 1975. And there's not anybody except for the big networks doing instant replays. None of these local programs, not even Florida, was doing instant replays. So 
the guy took me downstairs to the to the uh, production department, and and he says, "Can we do instant replays?" And the guy, the director says, "Geez, uh, man, what?" I, and so I got to looking, and they had the big old two inch recorders, the big tapes that they used to do back in those days, and they had the two two inch machines. So I said, "Look." You got two machines here. What if they were both recording? And then when you had the end of the match, you back one of them up, let the other one continue to roll. You back the one up to point where the the finish is, where you want to get, and and then just push the button and roll it in there. And they were like, "Geez, I think that could be done." <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, but they never thought of it. They they didn't. Nobody had ever asked for it. You know, nobody ever did that. So they said, "Yeah." Yeah, that can be done. And they gave me a, a kid, uh, Brian, a young guy named Bill Kincaid. He was a director. He was he couldn't have been 20 years old. And the first meeting I ever had with him, I said, Bill, I want to do lots of things here. I want to do split screen. He says, what do, you, what do you mean by split screen? I said, I want to have, you got three cameras. And I said, I want to sh- show a shot of two cameras on the screen at the same time, a little line down the middle. Can you do it? And he looked at me. I, I love this kid from that right this point on. He said, Ron, I can walk on water. And I said, <laughs> yeah. That's right. And I said, well, by golly, Bill, walk on water for me, man. I said, I want split screens. I want instant replays. I want to I want to do a personality profile in the middle of every one of my shows in which I'm going to take five minutes and just talk to one guy about what he does and how his lifestyle is. I'm going to do it in every show. I want to create a program that's different than anybody else's in the country. And I really did. We did. Les Thatcher and I, we created a show that was really, really good. And I used to go then for the next few years after that, Every time we went and there was a National Wrestling Alliance convention in, in Vegas, they always brought me up to talk about television. They would say, Ron, would you come up and tell us what you're doing with your TV? You know, how do you do that split screen? How do you do that instant replay? So I, I kind of started making a name for myself. So Southeastern became a pretty darn good for a small territory. It was absolutely phenomenal. And it was very competitive, probably with everybody in the country. Some of those things, nobody did the split screen. We had an angle one time there in which Mongolian Stomper came to me and Jola Duke, and uh, they said, uh, we want to break a concrete block on each other's head in the middle of the ring with a sledgehammer. Yeah, of course. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. I mean, it was awesome. It was unbelievable. And my first thing, I said, no. I said, you guys are going to get hurt. No, 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 we're going to do it. We, we, we can do it. We can do it. So they shot that thing. We, we broke the block on, on Stomper's head, and his manager was Gorgeous George Jr. We took a real close shot of it, two cameras, one, one with a real tight shot, one far off. We instantly replayed that thing after he did it. I, it looked like the sledgehammer hit him in the top of the head. He's like, gosh almighty, I'm in the control room. And I went, oh, jeez, man, he's not going to get up. He never went down or anything. He sat on his rear end. They put the block on his head. And George whacked it with this sledgehammer. So then we brought Joe back. So the next week, Joe says, I can do that. I'll do it. So he comes in the ring. He sits down. Gorgeous George comes in. Stomper's on the edge of the ring, out on the apron of the ring. 
and we had a 16 millimeter slow motion camera. I went to the, and it took me a week to find who can do 16 millimeter slow mo. I want this shot of this this uh, breaking of the of the block. So we set that camera up on the apron of the ring, probably four feet, five feet away from Joe LaDuke. And when Joe sat down, what happened with Stomper is Stomper broke a regular concrete block, like you build into a house or in the old days. Uh, but when they came that day, George came and brought a cornerstone concrete block. It was like three times as heavy and three times the size. And when I saw it, I was like, God, no. I mean, what are they doing out there? They, is he really going to try to break this on his head? So they get Joe in the ring. He sits down. Gorgeous George hands him the block and kind of situates it on the top of his bald head. Now, Joe LaDuke's bald. He puts the block on top of his head, and then he's, he's behind Joe. Joe can't see who's there, and Stomper comes into the ring and grabs the sledgehammer, and he breaks the block. And when it happened, I thought it broke his neck, you know, because it, the block, when he set it on his head, his neck actually went down into his body because the block was so heavy. And I was like, oh, this is going to be horrible. Somebody's going to get hurt. So crash, Stomper sneaks in the ring, grabs the sledgehammer and crashes him. And I mean, it looked like it hit him in the head, the sledgehammer. Uh, we ran it back and showed it on slow motion about four times. We showed it in slow motion for three or four weeks in a row because Joe got hurt. LaDuke got hurt. When he hit him, he went down. He had this stunned look on his face. You could see he was, sorry, he was hurt. And he fell back on his back. And then he sat back up, and I thought, well, maybe he's okay. And then he went back slow, and I was like, oh, my, man. So we had ambulance came, the whole deal. It was it was pretty shocking stuff. But those shots, that 16-millimeter slow-motion shot was just absolutely astounding. People watched it, and they, I had people see me on the street and go, my God, how did he not get killed? It looked like he broke his neck. So we were doing some things production-wise that weren't being done. Uh, and we'll go to Continental real quickly here. Now we're, we've progressed to about 1985. Uh, Vince has got his show starting to crank up, and, and I see his production. It's from big, big arenas. It's, uh, it's a great production. You know, it's it's far surpasses everybody else, but you got to expect that he's he's on the national TV, so he's obviously going to be able to get the money and the funds and everything to do it in a big in a big way. So we we went and uh, cut ourselves. We decided to change our name for several reasons. One of those reasons that we changed our name from Southeastern to Continental is because we had a distribution company out of Houston, Texas, somehow saw our show and they came to to Pensacola sat down with me, spent two days, said, we love your show. We love your product. We love your wrestlers. You know, they said, we want to distribute you foreign, uh, out, of, out of the country. We want to distribute you, especially in the Middle East. We want to get you into Kuwait and uh, the Arab Emirates and, uh, you know, uh, several different, Saudi Arabia. The, you know, so they started selling Continental. They loved it. And they, they, they just really went crazy over it. And they said, let us try to get you sell, sold in the, in the Middle East. So they were distributing us throughout the Middle East. But 
they then brought me to New York. They said, uh, we hear that NBC is looking for some people, looking for a program. So now we had a continental program. We had, we had a great program. We put a set up on a real big stage in, the, in a big arena, 6,000 people, sold and out. It was uh, Birmingham. It was a good wrestling town anyway. Uh, now we're now we're doing shooting with seven cameras, and they're all remote. Uh, you got uh, two ringside and 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 four located in different location. One on the stage. Really a nice production. Very good production. Really slick. Obviously, we had a format. Les and I developed a format in the early seventies and seventy four. And nobody had formats. You were correct about that. A lot of programs, you went in and said, uh, what's going to happen here today? Well, you're going to be on, but we don't know when, and we're going to do this over here or that. And I, and I right away, when I got on that big channel in Knoxville, I said, I got to have a, pro- a format. I have to know what we're going to do in advance. And so does everybody else, especially the production crew. They need to know where we're going from here. What are we doing next? We had developed all that. We really put together a great product in Continental. And that product then, they brought me to New York, took me to Tavern on the Green. We had a nice dinner, Central Park. And they said, Ron, we think we can get you on NBC. And I was like, now, you know, I probably should have jumped at it. In retrospect, I should have jumped at it. But I was a part of the NWA, and, and I knew that, Whoever gets this television, whoever gets this national product is going to be in a position to either screw everybody or make everybody. I was afraid if I said, yes, I'll take this program, I'll take the opportunity, I'd like to do it. I was afraid that I would create a lot of enemies. A lot of guys would have been scared of me. They would have they would have not trusted me. And I had great relationships with all types of different promoters across the NWA for sure. I had Watts was right next to me in in Louisiana and Oklahoma, and and I knew the I knew the Von Erichs very well, and and uh, and all the people in the South, Crockett's and and then Barnett, uh, Barnett had worked for and worked with and. And, uh, and Eddie and so you know I'm I'm thinking you know these guys are going to be horrified if this happens you know what is he going to do with this and how how is he going to handle this so I kind of backed away I, I said guys there's a lot more involved here than, than just saying yes I, I'll do this program and I think if I had gone there and, and taken that program and I would have done it totally different than what Vince did I think Vince just wanted to have it all. And I was never that type of person that wanted to have it all. Vince Jr. never was a part of the NWA, and he never really, his dad came to almost every convention. Uh, every year you had that four-day convention in Las Vegas, and, and Vince Sr. was always there. Uh, so was Vern. You know, neither part of the, they weren't a part of the NWA, but they showed that mutual respect and they recognize that we all need each other. We can have a better product and we can all do better if we share some of our talent and share things. And I was able to work with a lot of different promoters from all over the country. Just ask for guys and they would send them to me and I would send them back to them. Uh, for instance, in 1976, uh, Crockett sent me Flair and Patera. You know, I said, you know, Jim, I, I'd like to use, I've seen, I know Flair, because I've met Flair in 74 in St. Louis. We were working there a lot in St. Louis. And I said, I'd like to have Flair. And he said, let me send you Flair and Patera. I said, gosh, man, that'd be great. So it was just an example of what the business was like. And then Vince comes along, Junior, 
And his concept is, I don't want to be friends. I want to be the man. I want to own it all. And that's, I guess, where we are today. He, he took it in one direction. And it's a shame because I think it could have very easily been taken in another direction. And whoever had that program could have helped everybody around the country. And not only that, had a much better program than what Vince was going to be able to produce because you could have called and asked for these guys. You could have called out there and talked to Don Owens and said, can you send Piper to me for this national TV? And it makes Piper a bigger star at home too, as well as everywhere else. It would have made wrestling, made the wrestling business better. And what's happened is you had one guy in control and his concept is, is not nothing like Southern wrestling. Uh, let's just put it that way. His concept just flew in the face of Southern old time, Southern wrestling and, and, and keeping your business solid and that type of stuff. And it just changed. It changed the entire future of the sport in a way. And it's interesting because if you look at the promoters attempting to work together, Bill Watts and Jim Crockett and Vern, Pro Wrestling USA, they couldn't stay on the same page. It was like you had these big, big guys in the same room and they couldn't work together to fight against Vince. They were too busy not getting along. Yeah, yeah, they could have. At the very end, right before I sold out, because when it, when I, it got to 87 and 88, the writing was really on the wall for me. I was like, you know, I can see what's going to happen here. Uh, Vince, in fact, we trained a lot of guys. Continental, we we trained a lot of his stars. Uh, Hulk Hogan came from us. Uh, Honky Tonk Man came from us. Uh, David Schultz came from us. Uh, uh, Arn Anderson came from us. I mean, you know, we developed great talent. Uh, we were lucky. We got guys, young guys, and, and we were training them properly and putting them in the ring with great talent themselves, guys that could lead them and teach them. And so... When he brought Hogan back and, and ran in Birmingham across the street from me, same night, we were in Boutwell on Mondays. He, can, he comes and goes to the Civic Center across the street on a Monday night. He brings Hogan. He brings Honky Tonk. He brings these guys that I had made stars that had been big for me and my company. He brings them and puts them against me. And I sure that night they expected they were going to do a huge house. They were doing really big business, but we were we were determined to, to compete with them at that point. And so I said, we're going to do a two ring battle royal, and instead of raising the prices, we're going to drop the price, and we're going to draw more than they will. And you know, guys were like, "Geez, you think we can do that?" I said, "Hell yeah, we're going to do it. Let's do it." I remember that night that we were sold out. Boutwell was sold out. Hogan came over and Honky Tonk Man, two guys that I talked to that night themselves, came to me and said, Ron, they go, we got nobody over across the street in the 15,000 seat building. We don't have 2,000 people and, and your damn deal is sold out here. You know, they were amazed like, wow, this is unbelievable. But I see, I could see that you know, this wasn't going to stop. It was going to continue. And he was buying talent and, and using them against the people that had trained those people and made those stars for him. It was a kind of a cutthroat way of doing it, for sure. And I believe, you know, if someone else had got that television, those national TV or one, and you may be a competing TV, I know that Vince Sr. 
He had times in New York City when he had a lot of stations. He's in the biggest city in America, and they've got a lot of stations, and wrestling's a hot product. And he was a smart guy, and he says, somebody's going to get their show on here to compete with me because there's too many stations here, and they're, they're going to find a wrestling program. And what happened is, is he came to Eddie in Florida, Eddie Graham, and he and Eddie were friends because Eddie had worked for him a lot. And he says, Eddie, I, would you put your Florida program into New York City? And this station, that they're looking for TV. Let me get you that spot in there because I trust you. Now, you're not going to compete against me. So he put it, the Florida show in there. This is probably 1974, I think, 73, 74, as I remember. And I'm a pretty big star in Florida at that time. Then what they did after about four or five months, then Vince would bring one person off the Florida, out of the Florida crew. And he brought me in there twice, working in uh, Madison Square Garden. And I was really amazed because you, I didn't even know that, I, that we were on there. You know, I figured, well, this is nice. Vince has asked me to come up here and just be, make a shot in the garden. And, uh, you know, it's a big building. That's a, You can't work in a better place than that. So I was real glad to go. And when I go up there, they ring the bell, and I start to the ring, and that everybody stood up. I was like, wow, how did I get to be so over? You know, I'm thinking, what the heck? I didn't know that they would know me that well up here. And then that when I went home, I asked Dad, I said, what's the story up there? How come I got such a big? He said, we got our TV in there. The Florida TV's been there for five months. It, the Florida TV was such a better product than what Vince Sr. had and their talent. Uh, Vince Sr., like those big guys, the, he wanted the monsoons and the, and the big old boys. But, you know, Florida wanted them. He wanted, they wanted their Jack Briscoes that could move and that could, could grind and, and give the people some excitement and some action. And so what happened is Vince saw it. He, he, I mean, he's, he went and watched some of these intros for these Florida guys, and I think he got scared. He said, geez, if they were to come here, if we had gone to compete with Vince Sr. at that point, I don't think there's any doubt that uh, Eddie and my dad would end up in the Northeast. You know, it, they could have easily put Vince Sr. out of business because their product was so much better than his. In terms of your father, how much of your television shows was he actually able to see? And did he ever give you any sort of constructive criticisms about what he thought about your television shows? He came very rarely to, to see my stuff. He was, he, my dad was really funny. We had a very strange relationship. Uh, when I got my first business, I, I bought that territory from a guy named George Kazana, John Kazana. George, his brother, had owned before him, but John was the present owner of it. He's the one that had to warp your head off, old guy, and he had the, <laughs> you know, bad program, you know, and I made a deal with him. I, and, and the deal was for, at that point, it was a substantial amount of money that I paid. In fact, my dad gave me a lot of crap about it. He said, boy, you're stupid. Because, geez, you, you, you shouldn't have paid that kind of money. Uh, and, I, and I kept saying, Dad, you know, they don't have anything there. They, if they're doing the business they're doing and with the product that they're trying to sell from, I said, I'm going to make that thing big, you know. Well, you can't make it big, that big. And I said, well, I'll just show you. So he, he'd come and see me every once in a while. Sometimes he would come. He was training wrestlers on his farm and, and the other on the west side of Tennessee in a little town called Bolivar. 
and he had probably 20 guys he would train. And every once in a while, he would bring them over. And I remember one night he brought them over, and it was winter time, and I'd only been there maybe about eight months. It was snowing, and he came in the building late, him and all of his trainees, and we were sold out. And he was like, wow, guy. He goes, how did you sell out on a snowy, bad weather night like this? And the main event was me and Ron Wright. And he went and watched that match. And when I came back to the dressing room, he said, I'm sorry I asked you about how you sold out. He goes, you know, I, I mean, you guys really got them. You know, y'all really got them. So, so we... He, he he would he was pretty good about some things. He didn't offer much advice. I really believe that production-wise, my thinking was far beyond his. He did not focus on the production. He focused on the talent and the commentator. I focused on the commentator and the production. Obviously, you got to have the talent. If you don't have the talent, you're dead in the water anyway. But I had the talent. But our focuses were different. I don't think he ever complimented me on my show with the instant replay and the split screens and the personality profiles and all the little different things. Another thing we did that was really not being done, too, at the same time, Brian, is we did Vitafonts. We actually put the names on the screen when we were talking about a card or a particular town. You not only heard it, but you saw it. And there's a great deal more effectiveness to that that visual aspect as well as that being able to hear it. And I found out right away once we started doing that. And they put these this my little director there could walk on water. He walked on water for me. I went in one day and I said, I need a good background for this. And wham! Within ten minutes, he had me. Oh, I was like, wow, geez, Bill, you're unbelievable. And we put the names over it. We put the music behind it. Les did the Les did it. and then so and so in Johnson City or whatever. Here is this main event, and then that so it it was working. And that's another thing that I used to tell those guys when I came up on on the, the NWA meetings. I would try to teach them about you can do this vidafon rather than just having your guy sit there at the desk, kind of deadpan and read off who's going to be in such and such town. And there's no visual there. I said, you just cut a visual in the background and then you put make something out of nothing. And so he liked that. He 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 saw the saw the good and some of that stuff, but he didn't really offer me a whole lot of stuff. Dad was really um they brought his guys another time, which was really to me a, a great event for him and his boys. Uh, he he rented a, a bus and actually brought, I guess, probably twenty guys, and uh, it was a triple world championship that we had in Knoxville, biggest crowd they ever drew in the Coliseum to this very day. And uh, it was me and Harley on top, and Jimmy Golden and uh, Nelson Royal for the world junior title. It was a world's lady title. There was below that was Roddy Garvin and Mongolian Stomper and Robert and uh, I mean Tony Charles. A tremendous crew, tremendous crew. And Dad comes in there and he sees that event and his boys see that event. His it was like he he came that night and said, you know, Ron, you, you just <laughs> he said I remember telling you you paid too much money and he goes you've really proven me wrong. You know, obviously you're making damn good money now because you've got one of the better little territories, the maybe the best little territory that's ever been. No, so a little odd situation with Dad, but he did compliment me on occasion, and he worked for me quite a bit. Even into his 50s, he wanted to wrestle. He would say, let me come over there and do something. 
I was like, Dad, you're, you know, you're in your 50s. You don't need to wrestle anymore. Yeah, well, I, I want to. I'll come over and do something. Get somebody over for you. Do whatever. So that's kind of where, where it was with Dad most of the time. Just how important was Les Thatcher to what you were able to build with Southeastern? Les was a critical part of it because Les had never been a commentator for anybody. And he he wanted, he had a natural ability. And I, and I, I picked the right guy because he was just a natural as a commentator. Uh, very low-key. He was almost like a Gordon. You know, he was very low-key. He, he got excited every once in a while, but he kept it within some type of proportion and he's the one that really wanted to do this a lot of the split screens he wanted he, he he we talked about it before i even went to meet with the television people and he said ron let's if i get involved I, i've always wanted to do something different let's let's do instant replays and let's do split screens and let's let's have this thing called personality you know so a lot of that came from less we we sit and talked about things obviously we worked on format uh before we went to tv stations and we went in there prepared but less was critical part of that equation I don't think I could have ever had the success I had if I'd have kept the warp your head off whole guy. <laughs> yeah, Big Jim Hess? Yeah, Big Jim Hess. <laughs> I, 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 would, I would have never had the success I had because Les was more mainstream. He was more, he just had more class. It was a different show. He made the show a different product, and that's what it really needed. That's what I wanted. He gave me exactly what I wanted. He helped put the show into the 70s, and that may not sound as uh, as meaningful as it would have been in the 70s, but he put that show into the 70s because Big Jim Hess was from like another era almost. Yeah, he's from the 50s and 60s, you know, and that's that's a perfect description. I mean, you know, he was old time, and, and he thought that was cute, you know, the warp your head off, ho, you know, I, I was like, oh, man, what, how can he do that, you know, but to him and then to the audience that he'd been there for a long time. So people buy whatever you sell them. They got no place else to go. Right. I mean, it's the only show in town, so they're going to watch it. They want to watch wrestling. They're going to watch it. And I just tried once I bought it and took it over to present it in a different way, in a different manner. And it, and it, it got over it, it worked, you know, and I, I was able to tap into not just those old rednecks and people that live down in the, up in the mountains and down in the hollers, you know, I started getting businessmen and, and a, a different audience. I, I got them all. I got the, the still got the guys who lived in the valley and the, and the hollers. And, and I got the dudes that had money and, and had class and had brains. And, you know, so it was critical. Your television program was your life. And if it wasn't good, you better make some changes on it pretty quickly or you probably aren't going to be there very long. And I learned that early on. And having less and that getting less stature in 1975, my first year ever as trying to be a promoter and a wrestler, it was a critical moment and a critical choice for me. And it worked out fabulous for me. And Les and I are still friends to this day and have been for many years. Once I got into a hockey business, I had a team in Cincinnati and Les lived in Cincinnati. And Les and I spent a lot of time. He'd come down to the hockey office. And uh, we've been friends since 1972, probably. How long did you keep Big Jim Hess after you took over Knoxville? And 
Was it a difficult discussion? I mean, I'm sure when you have a guy who's been working for a territory for years, even if they're underneath, they expect that they're always going to be there. It's tough to let them go, let alone when it's the lead announcer of your program who clearly wants to be the biggest star in that program, too. Yeah, uh, you know, and it, it, it was we had a very contentious relationship, basically, because when I bought it, I, he's one of the first people I sat down with. And I, and I, I said, Jim, you know, I know you've been here a long time and and, you know, you've obviously done a good job here. You, they, they've made some money here and everything. And uh, I said, but I, I see things a little differently than, than what I see here on this program. And, and, you know, and I don't I don't think there's a place in my program for a warp your head off hole. You know, I said, I, I realize that you may have been doing that for years and that's what people recognize you for. But I said, I don't I don't really want you to do that anymore. And, you know, <laughs> you can imagine that I'm a young guy. Now you got to I'm I'm 24 years old. Yeah. <laughs> you know, he's looking at me like, well, you young punk, you don't know nothing. You know, you don't own the territory. You never run a TV. You don't you know, he didn't he'd never seen me work. And I was a pretty darn good worker, you know, but uh, he's just looking at me and, and how young I am and thinking, well, who do you think you are? You know, and I understood that. So I saw within the first few weeks there that this wasn't going to work. You know, sooner or later, I've got to have another person. And then when I got the opportunity to go and talk to the bigger station, I knew I couldn't bring Big Jim Hess over there. I wasn't going to do that. I wanted to go there with a fresh product, with a totally different format, with uh, class, some class and something I could build upon. And I couldn't build on the warp your head off hold. It just wasn't going to work for me. And and he wasn't very happy when I let him go. Another strange story about this was really just funny how life works out sometimes. I had made these trips over and talked to the big station, the CBS station. And the station that I was on, the U station, I guess they, I don't know what their books were. I mean, I don't know what their ratings were. I don't know what the Arbitron and Nielsen ratings were because I was just getting started. I wasn't even hardly old enough to know anything about how to read a book, in which I learned very quickly. But I guess their ratings weren't as good as they were, it had used to have been or whatever. But I went ahead and I made a commitment to go to 10. And I was going to go on a sat, on a Friday and meet with the management of the U station and say to them, I'm sorry, but two weeks from now, I'm going to be off your station and I'm moving to a bigger station. And I was very hesitant to go to the meeting. And this is strange, but, uh, and you know, I probably wouldn't even have thought of this. We hadn't been discussing this, but a lady, I go into the main office entrance uh, to the, the building in the U station that I'm about to tell them I want to leave. And she says, uh, Ron, could you come here for a minute? And I go over there and she says, Mr. So-and-so, I can't remember his name now, program director, general manager, whichever position he was, said to give you this letter. And uh, so I sat down. I've got a meeting. I'm, I'm waiting on meeting with them. And I opened the letter. And the letter it gives me a notice. It says, two weeks from now, you're finished here. <laughs> and I was about to go upstairs and say, two weeks from now, I'm gone. You know, it's like I looked at it. I was like, gee, my knee is, what a, how could this have happened? What a coincidence. <laughs> 
You know, so, so it was a really smooth transition. There was no hard feelings. I went on upstairs and I didn't even tell him I was going to the other channel. I said, guys, I'm sure sorry to hear about this, I'm, I, you, that you couldn't keep me, but I'll be all right. I, I'll make it. <laughs> yeah. and then two weeks later, I'm over there on the hoss, man. <laughs> it, was a, it was a little strange. Hey, you brought up Joe LaDuke earlier. I'm curious because I know you got to see him in Florida when you were working there, and of course he worked for you later on. What did you prefer, Joe LaDuke as a babyface or Joe LaDuke as a heel? Ah, Joe LaDuke, he was a tremendous talent. Uh, Joe could go both directions. I preferred him as a heel. I mean, Joe LaDuke was not a pretty guy. You know, Joe didn't have any pretty, pretty attributes to him. But Joe would give more for the business than most any guys I've ever, any guy I've ever seen. He he did things like, well, person, I mentioned his personality profiles. I remember one day we put him on a personality profile and he was working an angle with, uh, with Stomper, the same angle before he screwed up his neck. It was the early parts of the angle. And he said on there, he came to personality profile and it's just him and Les Thatcher. And they sit in front of a set and it's a low key deal. And he brings an ax to the deal and he sets the ax down on a little table between them. And he never talks to me about it. I don't know what he's going to do. I figured that it's going to have a little five minute conversation here. And then Joe, about four minutes into the deal, he says, you know, I'm willing to bleed. I don't care because I'll do things to win that most people wouldn't even dream of doing. He goes, in fact, he says, I'll show you just what I'm made of. And he picks up that axe and he puts it on the inside of his forearm and they clear a close up. So I see he's putting it. I'm like, what is he doing? I said, get a close up. And, and so Kincaid zooms in there and he's, cuts into his forearm from one side of the inside of his forearm to the other. The blood's running off both sides of his arm. I'm like, gee, my knee. Wow. What is he doing? That's the type of guy Joe was. He, he gave his heart and soul to, to you. And he just would do anything, anything to get over. And I really believed he was probably more effective as a heel. But as the wrestling business has always been, if you can get yourself over as a heel, you're going to be a huge star as a babyface. That's always been what I've I've seen. That's what my deal was. When I went to Knoxville, I had never healed. I'd been a babyface for my entire career, and I went in there and I looked at my talent. I had some pretty decent babyfaces, but I didn't have a good heel. And without a good heel, you're not going to go very far. So I had to say, I'm going to be the heel. I'm going to change my deal. I got to learn how to heal. And I did. And I got over tremendously there. I went to Memphis and for a year. I worked for Jarrett on top as a heel and got over and drew him a lot of money. And when I switched to Knoxville, it was just like Dusty switching in Florida in 1974, I guess it is. Yeah, 74. Blew the roof off of it. I mean, I never saw a territory go on fire like when Dusty turned. And, and and he'd been there. He'd been in Florida for 10 years as a heel and never been a baby face. And, you know, it, when you get that heat and they get to hate you, somehow they start to build a respect for you. I don't know, it's hard to hard to describe, I think, what happens in people's minds. But 
they hate you, but they got to love you in a way. They go, dang, the guy's really good, you know? I mean, I wish so-and-so could whoop his ass, but he's just good, you know? And then when you do that switch, if you do it properly, they did it properly in Florida. When I turned, we did it properly. Uh, we did it in a way where it really made sense, and and the people wanted it. They were begging for it. They want you. They 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 see it coming. I did the same thing in Memphis for them. I, I healed for them for a year. I brought they brought Rob in there, and uh, they had Australian boys, uh, Bill Dundee and George Barnes and Johnny Gray, three Australian kids. The young guys, diggers, man. I mean, hard-working son of a guns. And they brought Rob in. Been a babyface in Memphis for years. And he went out there, and it was against one of them. And the second one come in and beat the hell out of him. And I stood in the back as a heel and watched it. Didn't go help my own brother. Talk about heat. I mean, they were like, the crowd was like, you son of a bitch. You know, go get up there. Help him. Yeah, you couldn't exactly hide. Yeah, yeah, and I, and I didn't, I did it on purpose, Yeah, you know, I went out there and I wanted them to see me, that I wasn't going to go help him, because it was going to make more heat for me, it was just going to make hotter for me, so they did a two or three week program with just Rob, and he bled every night, all three weeks, and they they gang up on him two at a time, sometimes they the third one would come, and then they brought dad in. And dad says, you know, I got one son who's a great kid. Robbie's a great guy. Got a good heart. And I got another son. I don't know what the hell's wrong with Ron. You know, he goes, but I I see what's happening to Rob. And I can look at his face and tell he needs some help, by golly. And somebody to back him up. And by God, that's what I'm here for. So now they got a tag situation. They got two of those guys against Rob and dad. And this is like six weeks in now, you know, the crowd sees me never go and I never go and I never go. And then finally it's this tag situation. And then Johnny Gray, the Aussie comes, the third guy, he comes down to the ring and starts to do his normal deal. And then we were, we were ready to do the deal. We were going to do the switch. So I went down and grabbed him, man. And I ran him to the back of the old Memphis Coliseum, threw him into that big old screen. The one that, that, uh, makes a lot of noise, uh, it was one of the biggest pops I ever heard in Memphis. Came back. We were already selling out, but we came back and jacked it up to where it was phenomenal business we did. The, when you do it, when you start as a heel and you turn, if you've got the right kind of heat, you're going to you're gonna be a big star. But it's got to be done in the right way. This, if, you done, if it isn't done in the proper way, you're probably not going to get there. But that's that's up to the booker, man. That's up to your guy that's running your company, the the man that's making the decisions to to handle that properly, or you've really blown some potential money. I have to think though, there's an inherent difficulty that you had to deal with that most wrestlers don't have to deal with when you were a babyface, because when you're six foot nine, you're bigger than all the heels. So you have to work in a very different way than the typical you know, six foot, five foot ten babyface in terms of how you deal with that heel because you are bigger than the heel. Yeah, you you have to uh, you have to adjust, and that all goes back. My dad told me one time because I was all I was getting tall, and when I started working out and getting serious about it, I was in the six eight, six seven, six eight uh, height range. And he he told me one time. I said, I said, you know, I want to do everything. I want to be able to drop kick. I want to do flying head scissors. I want to do anything anybody else can do. And he said, now you're on it. He goes, you don't want to get into your head that you're big. He said, you want to be able to work with everybody. And if you can work with everybody, he says, you'll be a star. You'll, you'll get 
more accomplished than if you decide that you're too big to take bumps for some guys or you're too big to throw a drop kick. And and I took that I took that little bit of advice and and I never limited myself as to what I could do. And and I I, I realized that you can't have a match if you don't if you don't sell. And you want to go out there and you want to have a great match. I mean, that's the bottom line. It ain't going out there and getting yourself over or you look good, but the people just fart at it and they don't enjoy it and they go, God, that was a horrible match. What if you you haven't done any good for yourself or your town? So once you get to be a promoter, you kind of look at the business differently, you know, than if you're one of the boys. The boys always got to get over. The promoter... I never cared who was on the main event. I never cared who won or lost. I cared what the house was and what kind of night we had in the ring, what the matches were. And that was my focus. And I tried to make my wrestling the same way. I I, I would sell for little guys. Uh, I put a lot of guys over, probably shouldn't have. But I did it bit for business. It was business. It wasn't uh, ego with me. It was business. and. Uh, I just way I always worked that way. I always did it my life, a whole life like that. Back to the period of time when, in 1985, you made the change to Continental. A few more questions before we wrap things up about that. Uh, Gordon Soley, it would appear, had a rough few years. You know, in 83, you see Barnett pushed out of Georgia. You see Ole in charge. And then in 84, Dusty leaves Florida to become the booker for Jim Crockett. Vince right. McMahon takes over the TBS time spot. That's the end of Gordon Soley hosting Georgia Championship Wrestling. He hosts the Ole Anderson promotion for a little while. And then when Jim Crockett gets that time spot in the spring of 85, he comes back without Gordon, who was still really popular with those TBS fans. Eddie Graham dies at the beginning of 1985. And it is shortly after this that you bring Gordon into Continental. Now, you had always had Les Thatcher. You had Charlie Platt. What made you decide at this point in time to bring in Gordon, someone who you have known since the beginning of your career? What made you decide to bring him into Continental? Gordon was the man. And in my opinion, Gordon was probably the best wrestling commentator in history. And he worked for me. Actually, he worked for me before Continental. When I bought Pensacola from the Fields Brothers uh, in the, the Mobile area, the, what later was going to become Continental, I, I, I brought Gordon in back then. And he was doing it Georgia TV, and he would catch the plane after doing Georgia TV in the morning and do my Dothan TV in the afternoon and then catch a flight and go home to Tampa. Uh, he was doing a lot of shows back in those days, quite a few shows. And when it came time to do Continental now, we talked about how important your commentator is, how important your production is. We're about to take a studio show and turn it into a Vince production. We're, we're going into a big building and with a big set on the stage and a quality crew, uh, eight cameras, seven, eight cameras, a really big time production. I wanted the best. I, I wasn't going to settle for anything less than the best. And the great thing about it is Gordon and I had a phenomenal relationship. From day one, when I came out of college at the University of Miami and finally went, started in Georgia for three months, but when I went to Florida in 1970, uh, Gordon really took a liking to me. And, and he pushed my basketball. He was a smart commentator. He pushed my University of Miami connection and my legitimate athletic background because it helped the show and it helped me too. 
And he picked up on that, and he he used it that hey, this is the University of Miami basketball star, uh, Ron Fuller. It used to be Ron Welch, Ron Fuller. Gordon was great. So Gordon and I built a relationship early on from 70 on, worked all those Florida TVs for four years, uh, was on practically every show, and got to be personal friends. And then when I went to Southeastern, I took that Southern division of Southeastern, started it down there. I asked Gordon, I said, would you come and do it? And he and Charlie both did it. Charlie Platt was already there. I love Charlie. Charlie's a great commentator, too. Uh, Charlie been there for many, many years, and he had a he had something a relationship with the viewers in that part of the country. He didn't just do the wrestling show; he did one of the most popular early morning shows from like five thirty to seven o'clock in the morning that ever been on television in the South, probably tremendous audience, huge audience. So I kept both of those guys as commentators. And years later, Gordon got busier, and he couldn't do as much for me as he did before. But long before I even did my first Continental show in Birmingham, I already had Gordon ready. I said, Gordon, I got to have you for this one. And he said, can I fly in there on Mondays and fly home on Tuesdays? I said, I'll take care of all of it. Put you up, hook you up, take care of your planes, get the whole deal. And Gordon and I had a, we used to go, Gordon liked this party. Gordon liked to have a few drinks after he had worked. You know, he worked his rear off, and he did a phenomenal job. And we used to go and have a couple beers together. And I loved Gordon Soley. Uh, he was, he was, he was, he meant more to me than just a, an employee. He was a personal friend, and and deeply loved Gordon. And uh, I had to have him for my Continental show. Couldn't have done it without him. Like we said, around this time, this is when Eddie Graham commits suicide. This is when Vince McMahon's consolidating as much power as he can. Who were you talking to? Who were your closest allies at that point in 85 in wrestling? You mentioned Bill Watts, who was right next door. But who were you talking to the most around this time? I tell you, I was really becoming very disenchanted. I had been promoting since 74 been wrestling since 70 now we're 15 years in the end when you run you own a company and you're trying to be the promoter and the wrestlers on most of the cards it it's a grind and i was beginning to a little bit uh, kind of down wear out and uh, i was losing some of my zest for for the the business and the job and everything so I did business with uh, Bill Watts because I had a great personal relationship with Bill Watts. And because we were so close there, we did things like uh, he would give me Ernie, Ernie Ladd. And Ernie and I are about the same height, pretty much same size. You know, Ernie's a big boy. And he would, I would bring him to Mobile and I would work with Ernie. And then Watts would bring me to New Orleans to work with Ernie. You know, and and Ernie was great, too. I loved Ernie. What a great attitude Ernie Ladd had, you know. But uh, that's that, that was predominantly about the only thing I did with Watts. I really did not. I communicated with everybody at the NWA meetings. You had four days. You took different guys to dinner. Uh, you, you sat with different guys for lunch. You just talked. And you got a lot done in those four days if you, if you really went out there with business in mind. And... So I got to see pretty much everybody during during those times. Uh, Vince was not at his PowerPoint at that point. He he people weren't really horrified and scared of what was going to happen. Later on, toward the very end, 
I was making trips to Vern in Minneapolis and Vern and Jerry Jarrett out of Memphis, uh, uh, Devon Eriks out of Texas, they were trying to put something together to fight Vince. And I was on the edges of that, but I was really at that point pretty much saying, you know, I, I, I don't want to fight this battle. What's coming here, guys? I used to tell them, you know, what I see, guys, ain't good. I don't see you being able to compete. And the way he's doing it, I don't believe you're going to win. You're not going to be here. And I sold, I sold my company because I just felt that if I didn't sell it, it was going to just fall apart and disintegrate anyway. And you sold off the South portion and kept Knoxville originally, correct? Yeah, we, we ran the Continental. Continental, there, was, uh, there were partners. I had partners. I had my brother, Rob. Uh, Jimmy had a, a piece. Uh, Bob Armstrong had a piece. And uh, Roy Lee Welch, uh, my family had relations there as well. That's my grandfather's brother's son. So, you know, and Jimmy's my, my, my dad's sister's son. So, you know, I mean, we had a family there. And Bob Armstrong fit in perfect. Bob Armstrong was just as dear to me as my family members. I love Bob Armstrong. So we were all together, but... We all saw it. They started to see it, too, and business was starting to fall off. And I think part of that might have been my fault because I was just just, just disenchanted with the future here. What is this? What's this all going to turn out to be? And I was trying to see way ahead of everybody else's to, you know, what should I be doing to posture myself here? Uh, am I going to stay in this or am I not? I probably, you know, looking back on it, Brian, I might should have just gone and sat down with Vince, you know, if not to work for him, to book for him. I think I could have really, <laughs> if I'd had the hands and been able to get into that position for him, I might have set that tone in a different direction than what they end up going. But I was burned out. I was pretty much burnt out, and I wanted to do something different. I thought there was something else I'm going to find here someday that I'll be able to do. And sure enough, I got into something I never dreamed I'd be into and, and did pretty darn good at it. So, so I didn't miss it, and I left at a good time because within a year after I finished, it was all gone. So when we sold Continental, we basically sold just everything south of Tennessee because that was that relationship with me and Tennessee, it was always my town, basically. And Knoxville was, was mine by itself. I started as a young guy and built that sucker myself. And I had a good friend there named Bob Polk who had television connections and stuff. And we were able to go and put Continental back in there in 1985. But then when we sold it to David, you know, I never got paid uh, Jim Barnett and Fred Ward. Uh, bought Knoxville for me. They were the original buyers of Knoxville when I left Knoxville and went to Pensacola. And later on, we we would go back to Tennessee when nobody can follow us. That was uh, 1979. And for five years, Blackjack Mulligan came in there and ran it. Uh, Rick Flair was involved in it. A lot of different people came and tried to follow what we did in Knoxville, and no one ever could. 
It just never drew for anybody. And then we went back in 1985 with Continental and ducked all of us back. The stars that had built it, Rob and Jimmy and Bob Armstrong and and me. And it's it just like, it was like a homecoming. And the first night we went to Coliseum, we sold the sucker out. They had never, they couldn't draw 2,000 people. And we sold out because they, it was like they never forgot us. And uh, we were been gone for six years. So they were so eager and on fire to say, God, look, the stud's coming back and Rob's coming back and Jimmy's coming back. Bob Armstrong. They looked at that card and they just came and bought a ticket. Said, well, geez, it's going back to the old days. And we had some great business there for a couple of years before it got to the point that, you know, Vince was about to steal his weight into all of it. You know, you brought up something a few times about having the better product, that when you went into Knoxville, you knew you could produce a better product, that when you met with Vern in 88, around the time of the Super Clash 3 pay-per-view, despite the fact that there were various promoters involved, you realized they weren't going to be able to compete with Vince's product. How much of an advantage do you think you had versus other promoters that you studied marketing in school? I think it helped me dramatically. Uh, not only that, but I studied from the master. My dad was the greatest marketer in the history of cheese, of maybe of sports. Uh, the old Wrestling King of Sports logo, the ones that the New Japan uses to this very day, that came from my dad in 1954 in Mobile, Alabama. He He's the first guy to, to design and create that Wrestling King of Sports logo. And... Dad used it everywhere. When Dad went to promote, he used billboards. He used buses. He used taxi cabs. He used cards. You couldn't go into one of Dad's towns and not know that there's wrestling here and it's on a certain night or whatever it is because he just was... He was a marketing genius, and he dis he left no stone unturned. He would just do, he would do crazy stuff with his marketing, and it just so I'm a kid, and I, and I was paying attention to stuff way back when I was 12, 13 years old. We were in Memphis. I just saw all this bombarding of the of everywhere you went. People were talking about wrestling, and you know, buses went by, and there's the big wrestling king of sports, and a taxi cab it's on the top wrestling king of sports and the bench where you sit down to catch a bus i mean uh, billboards and so i did the same thing when i got started i bought billboards and i don't know how many promoters around the country bought billboards i started out buying the regular size billboard the little standard smaller size billboard and then i learned that the impact was in that big boy, that, that freeway billboard, that big sucker. And then I learned that you got to have some extensions on that billboard. You need to have a suplex and you need the guy's feet sticking out the top of the billboard. <laughs> yeah. 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 So, you know, I mean, and I took that to hockey. I, I went far beyond that once I got to hockey with what I was doing with billboards. And I just quit buying regular boards. I bought freeway billboards in, in Nashville for hockey and Cincinnati for hockey. I bought those boards in Birmingham and Mobile. I was doing business with Lamar Advertising, and they did most of the billboards in the South back in those days. And, hell, I was I was a personal friend of those guys. They were like, geez, they'd take me on trips, you know, because I was spending money with those boys. But it was cranking business. So, you know... I studied marketing in college at the University of Miami, 
But I really think most of what I learned and what was really effective for me is what I saw my dad do when I was a kid. To the right of you, while Continental's up and running, is Jim Crockett Jr. and what had formerly been Mid-Atlantic Wrestling would now become, most people just call it the NWA, but Jim Crockett Promotions version of the NWA on national TV. What was your relationship like with Jim Crockett Jr.? I, I had no relationship with Jim Crockett Jr. It's really funny. Um, I don't know that I ever met Junior. I met his dad. I had I knew I knew Jim Crockett Senior. Uh, obviously, my he was back in my granddad's day. He, him and Roy were very good friends, and I assume Nick Goulas was somewhat friends with him. Uh, he was friends with Dad and uh, everybody else. But I didn't. I never worked in Carolina in my entire career. I've had people ask me in some of my stud casts, you know, questions about uh, where is it you would have liked to work, you never worked. And that was, I, I, I've answered it with that. You know, I, I, that's a great territory. It was a, it was a well-run business. Those guys did good business. They had good talent. They had a, a good program. They had it going. They were a really good company. But we were side by side, never had a problem. Never had a problem with Jim Sr. or Jr. Uh, didn't really know Jim, Jim Jr. that well, but I know they ran a great business, you know, and, and I could tell that when I met Flair, when I was working St. Louis a lot, 73, 74, every other, every other weekend when St. Louis ran, I was on, on all those cards and Flair would come in sometimes and you got to see a lot of big name guys. You saw the best talent in the world work St. Louis because Muchnick owned it and Munchnik just wanted to, he didn't run his town like other wrestling promoters did. He didn't have a weekly show and you got to get guys over and you work the angles and you do the deal. Uh, he just was like, every card was different. I was on a lot of them and, and, and I never could figure that out. And somebody said to me one time, you know, Ron, they're, I think they're grooming you, man, for the title. Because when you work St. Louis a lot, it usually meant that Sam's looking at you. Sam's looking at you, then you may be going somewhere. You talked about the NWA conventions. You would do your, I don't know if seminar is the right word, but you would do your discussion about television production. Do you remember who, by chance, would have been the most curious, the most interested in what you were talking about? You know, obviously, Eddie. Eddie and, and, and the Florida people. Because Eddie, Eddie, Eddie had a great program anyway, and he, he wanted to be on top of things. Uh, he paid a, a lot of attention. You know, you never know in one of those rooms because when you went up and stood at the podium and you're looking over, <laughs> honest to God, wrestling royalty out there, you know, I mean, there's guys sitting out there in front of you that's either wrestled or, or been a promoter for some of them for 40 years. And, you know, so I, I never, I you couldn't tell who was really trying to grasp it. But I could tell that they, it, there was something that was good about it because they'd had me do it probably three years in a row. And, you know, it was, came, I thought it was going to become a regular deal. Ron, you know, would you come up here and, you know, kind of tell us what you're doing with your production? And so I knew that they were paying attention. Somebody was paying attention. And it was kind of an honor for me to be able to do that. I'm a young guy. I'm in that room. I, I'm 25, 26 years old. I'm the youngest damn wrestling promoter ever in the NWA, and they're bringing me up. Hell, in 1985, I was the vice president. I was elected vice president of the NWA. 
I was like, are you kidding me, man? This is ridiculous. <laughs> no, that's ridiculous. I was like, I, I was the one who I was, my name was brought up and there. Yeah, yeah, everybody's, yeah, yeah. And I'm like, oh, are you kidding me? <laughs> They're not going to do this. <laughs> and they darned if they didn't. But uh, it, that was a heck of an opportunity for me. If you were in the wrestling business, you needed to be at that, you know, you, because you saw you had an opportunity to talk with everybody that meant anything in the sport from all over the world. They come from England. They come from Australia. They come from Japan. They come from Mexico. They're out of Canada. I mean, it's like they're from, you know, and you get to shake those hands and be recognizable to them and then be recognizable to you. It couldn't have done anything but benefit me. And I always took those NWA meetings to be extremely important. That I didn't go there to drink and and to gamble and to have a good time. I went there to get something done. I wanted to come out of there four days later and and get that plane going home and and feel like, well, man, you may have accomplished something here. I think you've helped yourself, and that was what was important to me. It was a business meeting, man, for me, and one of the most important you could go to. I just recently saw a picture of you at one of the conventions. It was you and David Von Erich with Jim Barnett. Yes. Yes. Uh, uh, that's a, that's a great picture. And, uh, you know, David and I are pretty, David and I, that's the first time I ever met David was at that convention. We actually went, my wife and I, and his, him and his wife went to see uh Siegfried and Roy show. <laughs> really? Yeah. Yeah. And, and sit down really close. And I, you know, and I'll just give you this little story. This is kind of freaky in a way, but you know, that, that was a great show back in those days. I don't know if you ever saw that show, but that, that was a pretty amazing show. And they brought out elephants. And they had their, the ballroom is set up big. And we're right down front because Barnett helped us get tickets. Barnett knew everybody. Barnett was a very influential dude. And, you know, he said, David, you and Ron want to go to see Siegfried and Roy? Yes. So you take your wives. Here, he, these were great tickets. The tickets were, they, you know, we're we're almost on the stage with them, right? And they've got this platform that goes, that walks off the stage and goes out toward the crowd, and and then it it circles around and and it comes. You so they brought the elephants off the stage and walked them through that area. We're sitting right next to the where these elephants are walking. So close that they then the elephant stops, and I remember David sitting across the table from me. The elephant stops. He's close enough I could reach out there and touch the elephant's leg. He's that close, and they stands up on his back legs, right? <laughs> Gosh, and I've never felt so in danger in my life. I was like, if this son of a gun falls here, we're all dead. You know, it's just going <laughs> to kill us all. And and turns out it might not even have been a real elephant, you know. I would, yeah, I'm serious. <laughs> I mean, parts of that show was absolutely phenomenal. The elephant standing there beside me, I could smell him, and he disappeared. It's like, oh my, no, no way. I mean, I could have touched him. I, I I could see the hairs on his legs, and he disappears. It's like this is a oh. But that was my experience with David. I don't think I ever got to spend any time with David after that. Uh, but we spent a lot of time together that one NWA meeting. And I never really got to know those boys nearly as well as my brother did. And my brother worked a lot with those guys out there in Texas with Kerry and 
him and Jimmy were, they were big in Texas. They were doing pretty good out there for those guys in Texas. And I never had that opportunity to work for the Von Ericks, but I'm really glad I had the opportunity to meet David. He was a really great guy. He was a wonderful guy. Uh, just a few more questions, Ron. And I know I said that about a half hour ago, so I apologize. But um, first of all, in terms of, I, I know Bill Watts in early 86 did what you did. He turned Mid-South Wrestling into the UWF and brought it from the Irish McNeil Boys Club, which was a, a studio-ish kind of taping, to the big arenas. I'm curious because I know I've heard it from his end, but for you, when you do that, when you go and you take it to the big arenas in 85 as Continental, how much did the production cost skyrocket? Well, what we did is we 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 kept our we kept Birmingham as the production spot. So we didn't really take the show to other arenas. We had our own cameras and we would take our I would send Roy. Roy Lee uh, did all of our v, VCR and all of our tapings and if we wanted to shoot something or do something, Roy would go to that whatever building that was. Then that tape got delivered back to Monday night at Boutwell and uh, and then and then placed in the show. So we didn't have that difficulty. Gosh, I, it would have been hard to to go and set up every week in a different type of arena and get every the lighting and the sound. And there's a lot of stuff that goes into producing a show. And you you wanted you want to put your best product you can out there. So I said, you know, and I, the, the, we had a discussion about this, about how we're going to do this, where we're going to do it, and that type of thing. And there was a conversation, well, let's take it around. Let's take it to Mobile. And, let's, and I said, you know, guys, for one thing, the company that's doing the program is Ben Birmingham. And they've got to drive four or five vans and all their employees and all that equipment and everything. I said, let's just keep it in the same place. It's easy to set up. They know what they're going to be doing. They send the same people to do the same job week after week. And they put those cameras in the same spot. It it gets to be easy and simple. It's a bad enough to wonder what kind of program you're going to end up by the time it, the show is over. You know, what what's going to be good and what's not going to be good. You really don't have time to worry about, gosh, am I going to have bad sound through this whole program? Or is my lighting going to be so bad on the set that you can't see who's there? Uh, you know, those things, I didn't want to have to worry about those. I wanted to cut that part of it out so that I didn't have to be concerned about going in there. Am I going to find that one van didn't get here and we're two cameras short and, and the sound guys on the couldn't get here? You know, so it eliminated that that potential for disaster, I would call it, I guess. It, it could be a disastrous thing if it all fell apart for you, trying to do it on, on the road all the way, every time. You spoke about being in New York with your television guys, and they told you they thought they can get you on NBC in 85. This would have been around the time Vince McMahon got on NBC. I had heard different things throughout the year, so I'm going to ask you to confirm or deny them. Did Continental have any discussions with CBS? And also, were you in play for the ESPN deal? That Vern Gagne got? No, I was not in play for that. I was only, the only thing that I had an opportunity that I was aware of was this one that the people out of Houston brought me to New York City and and uh, talked to me about it. Uh, actually, we just did it all over one dinner and, and I said, let me think about it for 24 hours and I turned them down. Uh, but that was the NBC deal. 
that would have been the, and I think that's where Vince went. I think that's where Vince Jr. got his first start. Actually, he might have got that got that show. But I I was there. I don't know if I was there before him. Who was the first one? It could have been the first one in the door. I my guys from Houston were hot for it. They they said, Ron, you got to you got to do this, man. You know, this is going to make you huge. And I was scared of that huge. Uh, I was afraid it was going to make me a, a sinister some bitch to the rest of the guys. And, and they were going to stop liking me and stop respecting me. And I was doing well. I wasn't greedy. Uh, you know, I think that's, that's, that's the main word here is greed. I was doing well. I was making money. I loved what I had. My trips were short. My crews were small. Uh, they were great workers. Uh, everything was going well. And, and why really complicate my life and jump into that deal and then maybe lose a lot of good friends in the process? And that, so my 24-hour decision was, and I, those guys were really, they were hanging their heads. You know, they, they really thought that I was going to go the other way. But maybe I should have in retrospect. But you just never know, right, Brian? Life is, you never know where it's going to take you. Boy, I've really found that out in my life. I guess my granddad did, too. I'm sure he never thought he'd train a damn bear to wrestle. <laughs> you know? Absolutely. Yeah, you know, I mean, <laughs> so you don't know what's going to happen. And I never thought I'd be uh, in the hockey business or the ADT business or some of the places I've been. So it's a, it's a wonderful thing though. Thank God that he lets us, lets us have this, have our journeys. And, uh, and he's really been good to me. One last question here this week, Ron, when it comes to production, we think of those great shows with Southeastern and continental. And there's so many people who wonder what exactly happened with the master tapes for all of those shows. You know, so much it's on YouTube, but the YouTube videos tend to be videos that people taped off television. What is the status of any master tapes from Southeastern, either in Knoxville or Pensacola or Continental? And, you know, in terms of any changes you would make to your philosophies about wrestling, what have you learned today that you wish you could apply back then to master tapes and keeping a catalog? Oh, gosh. <laughs> Jeez. Yeah, I feel stupid when I talk about this subject. You know, I never had any idea in, in 85, 86, 87 that your old tapes would be of any value. I mean, the business was always run off of the fact that you did a tape specifically to jockey it around your territory and to draw you money with that one program. And tradition was that you brought those tapes back in and you just, you recorded right over them. As soon as they arrived back in the studio, some in uh, continental days, I probably had tapes going into 15 markets and, and that tape would take, sometimes those tapes would take uh, six weeks to cycle around. And when the old tape would come back in, the, my process was that, you know, let's, let's just record right over it. And I had no idea that they would ever be of any great value. Now, strangely enough, since you brought it up, I have a friend in West Virginia, a guy named Rock Parsons, and he has found some Excellent quality continental stuff out of England. How it got into England, I don't know. But we are working on it right now. Uh, I just saw my first uh, stick pin worth, uh, you know, of probably, I'm going to say 200 hours. 200 hours of continental. Wow. And uh, 
I don't know where he got them, but we are in the process of cutting them up. Probably going to do some DVDs uh, for me, uh, some specials for me, because there's all the a lot of the old stuff. Nothing from Southeastern. I have never seen anything from Knoxville, and that's a shame. God, Knoxville got to see some fabulous stuff, and uh, I wish I had have kept some of it, that's for sure. I wish I had kept all of it. You know, If I had known, I would have kept all of it, because it, it's, it's, it's a part of history. And that's why it was wonderful when he found this stuff and he called me and he says, Ron, I got this stuff and let me send you and just see what you think. And once I looked at the quality, I was like, you know, this isn't recorded from a TV. This is no VCR in somebody's home. This is pretty, pretty good stuff. It's not the master. You could tell it wasn't the master, but it's, it's pretty good quality stuff. And so I'm looking to put some of it out there in the future. He and I are working on now, trying to cut it into pieces and and uh, start to get it out there. I know there's a real lot of people, a lot of people across the country and around the world that want to see a lot of that continental stuff because we, we were loaded with talent. And we really, we did some pretty darn good stuff. <laughs> I mean, we we rocked it every week. Our program was it was it was made to draw money. It was all all done and formatted to draw money. We we just wanted to fill the houses every week. We wanted to just and never lose them. And we were probably famous for keeping guys longer than anybody else and turning them both directions and turn them one way, turn them another, uh, and still manage to keep that sucker going and and people's interest. And uh, I'm hoping that you know we will be able to get this stuff out and that people will get a chance to see a, a lot more of. Uh, maybe I guess it's one of the lost territories, is what you'd call it. I guess for one of the bigger territories. The continental territory is pretty well lost. You know, another thing, there's a lot of things lost here too, Brian. I just finished uh, on my stud cast a trilogy on the biggest event, wrestling event in the history of Atlanta. And I was just, I was absolutely amazed that once I did this, is how few people knew anything about it. It's like, what, how did that get by so many people that big Ponce de Leon show, you know? You know, so I'm finding that, you know, there's a lot of missing history to our sport. That's right. That's exactly right. And that's what we're trying to do here. You know, you try to do what you can. And, you know, I know all the negatives I've heard from people about what the dirt sheets did to wrestling. But in so many ways, what we have today in terms of wrestling history that's known is because that story in the dirt sheets got around to other fans and more people got interested in wrestling history. And right now we're kind of in a golden age of wrestling historians being able to do research because there's newspapers.com. I've seen so many newspaper clippings of your father just recently from people who go on newspapers.com and they pull up all sorts of interesting information. I saw some stuff about your grandfather too. And you know, the videos, stuff is still being discovered, but for the most part, you have to think most things aren't going to be discovered, but it's just doing research and making sure that the history is out there for future generations. And it's there. I mean, you're, you're right. I mean, I did his shows, and I'll be darned if I I got I got pictures sent to me of my dad on one of his horses, Scooter Me, that was taken. He used to take pictures and sell them, and instead of being in wrestling gear, he would be riding one of his big horses. 
And he had one called Scooter Me that was a lot of money. That horse was an expensive and a great horse. And somebody sent me a copy of one of those, and it was autographed by Dad. I was like, because I'm starting to get my name out there again, these people, there's a lot of stuff out there. But, you know, they they don't know where to send it to. You know, they don't know how to get it to you. And they and now, because I'm gaining some notoriety and people are listening to the Studcast, they're starting to send me stuff and say, look at this. Have you ever seen this picture of your granddad? I'm like, wow, look at that. That's great. I'm always a send it to me, send it to me. So, you know, I love it. I, I love the Studcast because that's what it does. It's all history. I mean, it it gives me a chance to to talk to wrestling fans about things that they're never going to know if I don't tell them. They don't know my family is the biggest and the least known of any probably wrestling family in America. It's crazy, you know. We've we've been out there for ninety some years, four generations, and people like who's Roy Welch. I'm like. Gosh almighty, what have we done? Why well, we hit under a rock or something for all those years? Uh, but, you know, it's a, the history of this sport is just a phenomenal thing in itself. I mean, this sport has just evolved and gone places that nobody ever dreamed it would. Some of the performers and the people that decided to become wrestlers, it's just a it's a remarkable thing, and we need to uncover as much of it as we can and make fans aware of it. Another thing that's happening here, in my opinion, too, Brian, I'm sure you, you may agree with this, is Vince has driven them back into time. Vince is the way he's doing business now. He's lost all these older fans because they don't want to take that ride. They don't want to go where he's going. And they want to now dig back. And, and when you can shake their memory, I, I write these, uh, I do this stuff in the stud castle. Well, Mario Galento, there's an example. People go, gosh, this Galento, this guy's a really, what a dude, man. He was in the movies. He did all these different things. They just, it's just, it's, it's just prime time now to be doing the historical part of it because they're hungry for it. Fans want to know about the past. Boom! There he is, the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller, host of The Studcast, available at fullerpod.com, or you can go to Ron's website, tnstud.com, and of course, don't forget, he's now doing The Super Studcast. You can go to patreon.com slash studcast to access The Super Studcast. I know we already did one about Andre, as well as a second one about Andre, and Ron Wright is coming next, so check that out. Of course, once again, fullerpod.com, or you can go to iTunes, wherever you find your favorite shows, and just search for Ron Fuller's Studcast. But Jerry, as we wrap things up, I want to thank you for sitting in the co-host chair. You knocked it out of the park and into the cup of piss this week on the show. And of course, I'm going to welcome you back. You'll be back on uh, in the next couple of weeks. But before we wrap things up, and I want uh-huh. to ask you to uh, anything you want to say to the listeners, and of course, how they could stay in touch with you on social media. But once again, I want to plug your GoFundMe page. And for anyone who's wondering, Jerry set this up himself. It's not a situation where the money's coming to me, and I'm sending Jerry a check. <laughs> the money goes directly <laughs> to Jerry Gray. And of course, you can go to tinyurl.com 
slash GoFundGoldenBoy. Of course, he's the golden boy, Jerry Gray. And this really goes directly to helping Jerry in his long now. I mean, it's been years, his battle against cancer, which has really, you know, wrecked havoc on his finances. So every little bit helps. If you enjoyed Jerry on the show this week, if you enjoyed him on the Jim Cornette experience, and I'm sure you'll enjoy his future segments, consider helping out once again, tinyurl.com slash GoFund golden boy. But with that said, Jerry, anything you want to say to the listeners? I just want to thank everyone for the support they've been giving me. Travis Heckle with his great artwork, the way he's doing his uh, artwork to send donations for me. And then you, Brian, last for all the stuff you've been doing. Jim Cornette helped me on the, his podcast. I want to thank everyone from the bottom of my heart. And I want to tell you a little more details of my situation. I had uh, at first was colon cancer, had the operation, colostomy bag. And then a couple of months after that, it spread to my liver. I had three huge tumors in my liver. They had to remove half my liver. And then now it's in the uh, bone. So... I have stage four, they call it liver, colon, and bone cancer. And they told me back in 2013 that I, if I did chemo, I'd have five years and then without it, two years. But, you know, doctors aren't always right so because it's already been over at the time they said. So that's what the situation is. And I had a lot of shows doing real good up until this happened, and then it just takes so much out of me to even go to a show they just had right here in Orlando, like 20 minutes away. I couldn't even sit there for two hours, barely. I was half dead after that. But um, I can't do it like I used to do. That's all I've done since I was 17 years old, and I miss it. But I really appreciate all this, all the memories it brings back doing these podcasts with you, Brian. And I love telling the stories, and that was just a sample of some of the stories. I have so many. Thank God I do have a great memory still. I don't have much, but I have my memory, and I love the business more than anything in the world, and I thank you again, everyone. Now, we are very happy here at this show that the doctors were wrong, and we hope that you'll be uh, with us for a very long time, Jerry, and you will always be welcome here on this show. And, you know, it's one of those weird things, you know, we brought it up last time, was just that it's so interesting that you and I, we traded tapes years and years and years ago, and all these years later, here we are connecting again, and uh, it's um, it's my pleasure to do what I can, whatever little bit that has been, to help you out, and I hope everyone else does. Once again, tinyurl.com slash GoFundGoldenBoy, and you'll be hearing a lot of Jerry on the show in the coming weeks, but as we wrap things up, of course, you can stay in touch with the show on Twitter by going to at 605pod. You can follow me on Twitter at... Great Brian Last, and you can follow the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network on Twitter at Super Podcasts. On Facebook, you can join our online Facebook community at facebook.com slash superpodcast. You get to see the Travis Heckle artwork. Vote for the top 10, which will probably be on next week's episode. Get show updates, communicate with other listeners of the show, and so much more. Whenever I want feedback, I go to facebook.com slash superpodcast. Also, the best way to communicate with the show, if you have a private message you want to send in, that's usually the best way, facebook.com slash superpodcast. And of course, if you like that page, and you really have to, you're welcome to join the Mothership Facebook group. It's a group for everything off-topic from the show. You could talk about the show, but you could talk about current wrestling, past wrestling, sports, music, movies, anything else, as well as communicate with a lot of the people you hear here on the show, including Golden Boy Jerry Gray. You can go to facebook.com slash groups slash superpod 
talk. And again, you have to be someone who likes the Facebook page already to join the mothership group. I mentioned it earlier, tinyurl.com slash superpod Amazon. Give that link to everyone you care about and love and tell them to use it as much as they can, especially for Valentine's Day, which is coming up. By using that link, you support this show without spending any more money than you normally would. And we, of course, always really appreciate it. tinyurl.com slash superpod Amazon. Of course, if you want to buy 605 Super Podcast show merchandise, t-shirts, we have the logo t-shirt in black in gray the yo mamba 605 shirt our polo shirts stickers magnets and so much more and actually a few sizes just went out of stock earlier today so they're back on order we should have them in the next couple weeks and we have a couple of new shirts on the way pretty soon including by popular demand the first arcadian vanguard shirt you can get information about all of that and so much more and make any purchases you want to make by going to tinyurl.com slash superpod store the official online store for the 605 Super Podcast. If you enjoy this show and want to make a donation because you realize we're not putting tons of ads everywhere, we're doing this because we want to do the best wrestling podcast there is with integrity, then consider making a donation to the show. You can go to Patreon and make an ongoing monthly donation by going to patreon.com slash superpodcast, or you can make a one-time donation at any time by going to paypal.me slash superpodcast. Thank you to everyone who has, in the last week, made a $6.05 donation. They usually come in bursts, and it always makes me smile. So thank you to everyone who's been supporting this show. There's a lot going on. I have a new baby that will be on the way pretty soon. We actually thought it was coming a little earlier than we expected. We had a few days of wild and craziness. So uh, every little bit helps. If you enjoy the show, consider supporting it. iTunes! You can, of course, subscribe on iTunes, and if you listen to us there already, please consider writing a positive review and leaving us a five-star rating it really does help the show out and it would help us out too if you go through some of the other positive reviews and just give them a thumbs up that also helps the show out of course you could do that at itunes but if you don't want to use itunes you could access any episode all episodes of the show at 605pod.com that's also the place you can go to access our rss feed the 605 super podcast is sponsored by our friends, the wrestling fans at Ramsor Records, ramsorrecords.kungfustore.com. Use the promo code 605 at checkout and save 20% on all purchases, including David Childers' album, Run Skeleton Run. For upcoming dates of David Childers with Kyle Petty, go to davidshoulders.com. You can access all the many shows from the Arcadian Vanguard family of podcasts by going to iTunes, Stitcher, Podcast Addict, or wherever you find your favorite podcasts, including Breaking Kayfabe with Baldrin and Barry at baldrinpod.com or again on iTunes and everywhere else, Scott Bowden's Kentucky Fried Wrestling at kfrpod.com or Ron Fuller Studcast at fullerpod.com. If you want to send anything into the show, you can by sending it to the 605 Super Podcast. P.O. Box 1242, Morristown, New Jersey, 07962. That's the 605 Super Podcast, The Mothership! P.O. Box 1242, Morristown, New Jersey, 07962. The 605 Super Podcast is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. For the golden boy, Jerry Gray, I'm the great Brian Last. Until next week, tally-ho!